0: My name is Nicola, a.k.a. Socrates, and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. If you guys enjoy this podcast, you can help me make it better in one of two ways. You can go on iTunes and write a review, for which I will be very grateful to you, because it does make a big difference to my ranking. And also, you can simply come to my singularity.fm website and make a donation. Today, my guest on the show is Gennady Stolyarov II, who, among many other things, is the author of a book called Death is Wrong, as well as, most recently, the chairman of the United States Transhumanist Party. So, welcome to Singularity FM, Gennady.
1: Thank you, Nicola. It's a great pleasure to be speaking with you today.
0: Fantastic. So, Gennady, if I were to ask you to introduce yourself in your own one or two sentences,
1: how would you do that best? Well, I consider myself an individual who seeks to use ideas in order to change the world. And I do that through a broad array of endeavors, be it my philosophical writings or my political work on behalf of the US Transhumanist Party, or my work as an actuary or my musical compositions or the YouTube videos that I create in my spare time. I would say the guiding principle of my life is the quest for permanence, which I strive for in every area of my endeavors.
0: The quest for permanence. So is that the biggest area in the world that you want to make an impact, that you want to make a difference for?
1: Yes. Absolutely. And I would say it unites a lot of my areas of endeavor from the pursuit of indefinite life extension, which would also involve indefinite youthfulness and vitality, to the attempts to preserve the great cultural and intellectual accomplishments of the past, which we should strive to appreciate and build upon. Mm
0: Fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, by the way, I have to uh, submit uh, greetings to you from uh, Dr. Angel Marchev, or Angel, perhaps in English, Marchev, Sr., as well as Junior, uh, first and second, I guess, in English, uh, who are two notable transhumanists from Bulgaria and who are very happy that I would be bringing you to my show today.
1: Yes, and I greatly appreciate the work of both professors Marchev, Sr., and Junior. Uh, I had met Professor Marchev Sr. at RadFest in San Diego in 2017. And uh, I had also interacted with Professor Marchev Jr. at the VSIM 17 conference virtually in uh, Ravda, Bulgaria. And they are both amazing intellectuals. They are forward thinking individuals who are really applying some innovative techniques to teach transhumanist ideas to students in Bulgaria
0: yeah I, I was just uh, in Bulgaria for Christmas myself, and I enjoyed meeting them in person both tremendously. Uh, we went out a couple of times uh, and actually they're working on translating uh, my book Conversations with the Future in Bulgarian because uh, I wrote it in English, so <laughs> and it's uh, too way too big and huge to to start translating in Bulgarian myself. plus, I'm not so good at translation. So uh, yeah. I appreciate the help they're offering. But getting back on topic here, Gennady, today I want to discuss or break our conversation in three uh, sort of rough parts. So the first topic is uh, I want to sort of briefly touch upon uh, your uh, book, Death is Wrong. Then secondly, I want to talk about the US Transhumanist Party in particular, and then Finally, perhaps I want to leave some time for us to discuss transhumanism in general as well as other related issues such as artificial intelligence, the technological singularity and so on. So um, let's start things off a little easy today and just for fun, cat person or dog person?
1: Most definitely a cat person. I have two cats, Beatrice and Newton. Beatrice is outside my door meowing right now wondering what I'm doing. But I've had them for nearly eight years now. They're both rescues, and they're great friends of mine. What I appreciate about them is they have strong personalities. They're very individualistic, but at the same time, they're quite benevolent and quite affectionate. And I think a lot of people who are not cat people do not necessarily see that at first glance. But if you have some experience with them, uh, you would definitely appreciate those aspects of their character.
0: Mm-hmm. Very interesting. So uh, do your cats have, uh, do you have a contract for Alcor by any chance or Cryonics?
1: I do not at present. And i I've been considering that as an option, but being relatively young, I think my priority right now is to accumulate savings. And then when I do make monetary contributions. Uh, I try to pursue plan A in terms of longevity, uh, which is to contribute to rejuvenation research. So hopefully, by the time I'm in my 50s and my 60s, viable age reversal therapies would be available for me and people of my generation.
0: Of course. So you prefer plan A, which is to say life extension. And that is a good lead for us to our first topic of conversation today. Your book called Death is Wrong. Can you please tell us about your book and who is it for?
1: Death is Wrong is the world's first illustrated children's book on indefinite life extension, and I think the only one thus far. And it is intended for general audiences ages eight and older. It is certainly not exclusively a children's book. A lot of teenagers have found it quite illuminating. And a lot of adults have found it inspiring and interesting as an introduction to the ideas of life extension, both from my personal perspective, how I came to be an advocate of life extension as a young child, as well as from the standpoint of the philosophical arguments for why indefinite longevity is desirable, and a little bit of the science about animals that are negligently senescent, about SENS, that is Dr. Aubrey de Grey's approach of strategies for engineered negligible senescence, and what people can do. So uh, it is intended for children who are interested in science, in technology, in thinking creatively about the world. I would say some precocious younger children, uh, say myself at ages four or five, would have appreciated this book. Uh, But... I intended to be as broadly accessible as possible. Speaking of which, it has been translated now into four other languages, Russian, French, Portuguese, and Spanish. So I'm very pleased to see it spreading throughout the world.
0: Mm -hmm. So if you were to capture your thesis in, let's say, a couple of sentences, why is death wrong?
1: Death is wrong because life is right. And there are so many opportunities, so many experiences, so many wonderful things that we can do with our lives. And ultimately being alive is the necessary prerequisite for any of them to happen. I'm not myself a religious person. I don't believe in an afterlife. So my view is unfortunately, when we die biologically, that's it. We lose everything that we had ever experienced, even any memory of ever having lived. And that's a great tragedy, because most of us did not commit egregious atrocities to deserve that sort of end. So instead of giving into that outcome, let's fight it. Let's figure out scientific means of overcoming it.
0: I can hear Beatrice in the background.
1: <laughs> Maybe she agrees with me.
0: I she, she might, or she might wanna add something. Uh, Who is she named after? I get Newton, but Beatrice?
1: Beatrice is named after Beatrice in Dante's Inferno. So, uh, as you know, Dante goes through uh, essentially hell, purgatory, and heaven to try to find Beatrice. And I have Beatrice right here. Wow.
0: Okay. (laughs) Very poetic. Okay. now, I know you had a Indiegogo fundraising campaign to send uh, your book for free to 1,000 children. How is that going, and have you succeeded?
1: Yes. So that campaign was successful back in 2014. We raised a bit over $5,000 via Indiegogo, and as a result, I was able to distribute approximately 10000 sorry, 1,030 copies of Death is Wrong, after which I also made the book available for free as a PDF file, and it has had uh, many more thousands of downloads since that time. Uh, So essentially all of the money was spent on shipments all over the world. About half of the shipments were outside of the United States. And the way I coordinated it was I got in contact with longevity supporters in other countries, people who were aware of essentially the circumstances of time and place, which communities were out there where there would be children uh, who might be receptive to that message, people who might spread the book in schools uh, or other learning institutions or just in their neighborhoods. I had a teacher in the UK order about 100 copies uh, for students in his various classes. Uh, there was an activist group in the Netherlands who ordered 120 copies to spread to children over there. So I, I think in terms of the impact of that fundraiser, it definitely achieved what I wanted it to achieve.
0: hmm. Uh-huh. Very good. And how is the feedback for the book in general?
1: I think generally the children who have read it have appreciated it with responses ranging from mild curiosity to enthusiasm. Interestingly enough, teenagers have been more enthusiastic about it than younger children. And adults who actually read the book and go past the cover image Uh, have generally considered it to be a thoughtful reflection. Now, of course, there are uh, various ideological strains in the adult world that are critical of the book. And generally speaking, uh, I would categorize them in two buckets, one of which is the bioconservative, you're messing with God's plan uh, type of argument. The other is the neo-luddite or left-wing uh, environmentalist type of argument of uh, you're uh, essentially exacerbating alleged problems like overpopulation, uh, environmental destruction, etc and we should instead abandon technology and return to hunter-gatherer times. Uh, so those are extreme positions on the right and the left. People who hold more moderate positions tend to be at least open to the ideas in this book.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I have to say, I personally am very open to the ideas in this book. I also think that your goals are commendable, and yet I struggle to say that I like it. I'm not really a fan of it. So I, I wonder. I was wondering which camp I would gonna end up.
1: <laughs> uh, so I, I would be curious as to your perspective and your feedback.
0: Well, I do, I do have it, but, but, you know, in the end of the day, my opinion is not the truth. It is nothing more but my opinion. And if you have positive feedback from around the world, why should we waste time on it?
1: (laughs) Well, I'll leave that to your discretion.
0: Right. So it's just, uh, yeah, I, I. To me, it's just I think, to be honest, uh, how can I put it? I I think it doesn't work for adults because it's kind of a little immature in terms of the way it's written, and a little crude perhaps in its writing, and it doesn't work for children. To me, too, because it's 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 not fun. It's not engaging emotionally enough. It's not interesting. Like if I was a child, I wouldn't want to read it or not stick to it. But again, this is not the truth. This is just the skewed opinion of one very flawed person. So if you have a a thousand other people telling you that you have a great book and they're willing to order a hundred at a time, who cares? Right? So let me focus instead on something more curious and productive here. You have the following quote in the book, and I want to ask you, it's a little bit of a personal curiosity question. Quote, my superheroes were old wise men who traveled the world on magic carpets, period. They had exceptionally long beards, longer than my grandfather's gray beard, since they were much older. To me, a beard became a symbol of living to an old age. The older a man was, the longer a beard he got to have. I too decided that I would grow a beard when I could, and I would never shave it as a reminder of a part of myself I never wanted to lose. So is that why, for as long as I remember, you've been having a beard?
1: Yes, that that is exactly why uh, I've been having a beard and why my beard has become a little bit thicker as I've gotten older. And I think it's very important for me as part of this quest for permanence to be Consistent with the image of myself and the image of the aspects of myself that I valued in earlier moments of my life. So I want to be the kind of person of whom the five year old me would be proud. And in 30 years, I hope to be the kind of person of whom both the five year old me and the 30 year old me would be proud. So I I try to encompass that totality of my values and aspirations in every moment that I live.
0: Yeah, and and I appreciate that in you, and I actually think that's very important, um, which is why I try to bring light to not only a person's work when I interview them, but also to their personality, because I don't believe that you can differentiate or that you ought to differentiate between what we do and what we say. And who we are, um, and and I can't give uh, you know a break to someone like Wittgenstein, for example, who was a brilliant philosopher on the one hand, and on the other hand, a very strong Nazi sympathizer. So and and yes, we can learn something from his philosophy, perhaps, but I cannot personally respect him as a person and as as an individual, and I cannot separate his work from his being. I think it's a, it's, a, it's a totality and we must all live our message and that's why I respect you uh, and, and one of the reasons why I decided to bring you to my show today.
1: Thank you very much. That's a great compliment and I greatly appreciate it.
0: So even if we have disagreements or don't see everything eye to eye, I can respect the fact that you and another person of that uh, ilk, by the way. Uh, who lives their message, and I respect very much, despite our disagree uh, dis- uh, minor, maybe, disagreements, is Peter Voss, by the way, who is a, a, a person very committed to living his message. And I really respect and, 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 and uh, sort of, I really like that in, in him in particular and in other pers- people in general. Let me ask you another question based on a quote from your book, though, again. Uh, and this is the quote. The old Soviet films showed that some of the heroes who fought back against the Nazis were younger than 15 years old. Some of these child soldiers were made to suffer horribly before they were killed, but apparently they did not betray their motherland. They were praised without limit for having given their lives for their country. But to me, what happened to them was just sad. They should have tried to escape and live as long as they could, I thought. There was no glory in death and no point in it. So, end of quote. Let me ask you this. Do you not think that there is no circumstances at all, whatsoever, hypothetical or real or possible, where death would be a preferable choice for you?
1: I would say there would be no such circumstances because with death, I would lose everything, even the opportunity to right a very terrible wrong. So, uh, had i been
0: what if in dying you have the opportunity to diminish at least the wrong or or maybe even write it off but maybe at least diminish it
1: i would have no way of knowing uh, essentially that even that attempt had succeeded but i sometimes think what i would have done had i been say 15 years old in 1941 when the nazis invaded the soviet union and considering that I could have probably fled amid the chaos, gone to a neutral country, and hopefully lived another 80 years, during which I could not only achieve in a variety of endeavors, but if I was horrified by what the Nazis had done during their occupation, I could have taken part in efforts, for instance, to pursue Nazi war criminals, which were ongoing in the subsequent decades. So I think a person is always more useful uh, alive than dead in order to improve the state of the world and combat injustice.
0: But what if everyone reasoned like you and everyone ran away from the front? Because there were many other 15-year-olds who thought differently and who signed up and fought and were part, at least, of first halting the the German uh, onslaught and eventually turning back the tides of war. So isn't that and and that's just one you know example that's beaten to death. But but maybe let's make it something more personable. Let's say you can save the life of a person you love, like your wife. But the cost of that the cost of that would be giving your own life and there's many situations for that it could be like anything from an aggression or uh, assault or or like medical treatment that we don't have the cure yet for but you know and you have to donate some some organ of yours or anything like that
1: so i would say in terms of articulating a universalizable principle if everybody ran away from the front on both sides, there would be no war. People would see no point in fighting to the death over any sort of ideological or geopolitical objective. So I think the problem and practice arises when some people don't hold that principle, but other people do. And what is more effective and right for the people who do hold that principle in terms of essentially making it? To the next phase of the world, so to speak, when that immediate danger has been averted. Now, in the situation that uh, you describe with uh, the possibility to save somebody uh, one loves through an organ donation uh, or another course of action, I think the world is complex enough and multifaceted enough that there is never this clear binary alternative of either sacrificing yourself or sacrificing another person. Uh, If there's an opportunity to do some creative thinking and problem solving, I think it's always possible To find a third way and it's difficult sometimes to conceive of the third way when we're just looking at a situation in the abstract but every specific situation has a myriad of circumstances associated with it and one can find certain circumstances that would align in such a way as to achieve an outcome that doesn't require sacrificing anybody now that's contingent on having that information having the time and the intellectual capability to think through it. So it doesn't always happen. And often in the real world, there are great tragedies in uh, human matters. But at least hypothetically, I don't think we're locked into this uh, sacrificial binary alternative. You know, uh,
0: I sympathize with with your sort of motivation in answering that, and I respect your conclusion. Uh, but. You know, we know that there are people who are willing to kill and die for things today. Uh, Whether we like it or not, whether they're confused in their first principles or not. Uh, Like, for example, those soldiers in Germany. Uh, Or more specifically, getting out of the hypotheticals, when I was in the army, you don't have time to discuss things. And especially when you're a platoon commander like I was at, at the end, and you have 40 soldiers under you, and your choices and your decisions can mean somebody dying and it comes kind of it's it comes with a territory and you have very time sensitive constraints that you have to move and execute on something so let's say the first person who opens up a door can end up being blown up or shot and that's what it means to be the first person opening a door or going through a door that you don't know what's behind of, right? And, you know, people can take turns, but, you know, at a certain point in time, you have to say, screw it, like, I have to get on the other side of this. (laughs) I don't know, and I don't have any control what happens once I open this door, but I have to be on the other side, and other people's lives depend on it. And if I refuse to do this now, other people will die or something of that sort so but but it seems to you that you see no circumstances hypothetical or real under which you can sort of lose your uh, or give away your life or or think that there's something more important to you than your personal life
1: i would say there's a distinction between taking a risk and knowingly giving something up so we take risks of a variety of magnitudes every day when i drive onto the highway to go to work i am taking a risk with my life because there could be uh, bad drivers out there or there could be bad weather or the bridge on top of me could collapse uh, onto my vehicle and the risks are sufficiently small and i appreciate their small magnitude to such an extent that i'm willing to undertake a routine task just earning my income for the day uh, in order to get onto that highway. And I think to some extent we all do that. It's a question of what our subjective estimate of the probabilities is. So in your situation, if a soldier is opening the door and there could be an explosive there, there might also not be an explosive there. Uh, so that soldier still has some hope that he's going into a situation, he might make it out. and. To some extent, that could be rational, depending on the circumstances. If there were an enemy on the other side of my neighborhood uh, who was threatening my livelihood and my property, and my neighbors got together uh, to try to infiltrate the stronghold that that enemy had set up, (laughs) uh, I might be willing to take that risk. If I saw the consequences of the enemy persisting uh, being more severe. It's a very unfortunate situation when that happens, because uh, there could be terrible consequences no matter what decision you make. And at that point, you just have to do your best. But what I wouldn't do is knowing that I would perish, take a certain action. Uh, So uh, I think one has to make a distinction between a probabilistic outcome and a certain outcome of loss.
0: Well, what about, let's say, the 300 Spartans that held the army of Cyrus the Great? Uh, or not, not. Was it Cyrus? It wasn't Cyrus. Uh, Cyrus was much nicer fellow than this guy.
1: Right. It was uh, Xerxes, I believe.
0: Xerxes. Sorry. My bad. Oh my God. And that's a horrible mistake. Cyrus was actually a highly enlightened person and he had Greek teachers and tutors. And anyway, Xerxes. So those 300 right? They knew they would perish, and they did perish. And yet, was that not a worthy thing to do? And they saved Greece, all of Greece in their effort.
1: Now, it's questionable, it's questionable whether their particular action at Thermopylae actually saved Greece, or whether had the Persians advanced through that pass, a larger Greek force uh, might not have defeated them in any case. Uh, so, I don't know in that particular circumstance whether their sacrifice actually had the impact uh, that it is represented as having. Uh, now, I, I don't dispute their courage, but I do dispute the entire social structure under which they operated. As you know, ancient Sparta was an extremely totalitarian, collectivistic society where the lives of these young men—
0: slave-owning and all oh, yes. of that. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Like, sure, sure. All that, that for sure. I'm just like trying to say that there may—at least to me, it seems there are cases in which, as far as I can see, there would be higher priorities than my personal life. That's at least the conclusion that I have reached. Yes, I wouldn't want to die myself too, but there are quest- cases where we have to make sacrifices, where we have to choose the lesser of two evils and that we don't control the the, the horns of the dilemma and we don't have a third option and no time to uh, calculate the third option. and And, you know anyway so I'm just saying is that sometimes there are higher priorities like people that I love to survive rather than me to survive or or even ideas if you will uh, but anyway that's just me uh, you wrote an interesting book for children you successfully uh, spread it over a thousand of them you have people who translated your book I sympathize with your cause so that's commendable thank you Let's move on to the second part then. What is transhumanism?
1: Transhumanism is the philosophy and movement that advocates humankind overcoming the historical limitations that have plagued the human condition. Limitations such as biological aging, disease, scarcity, war, human psychological limitations, and ultimately death itself. So transhumanism is not a rejection of humanity. It seeks to preserve the best aspects of humanity and to carry them forward without all of the historical baggage, let's say, that has weighed us down. And I would say another dimension of transhumanism is it is the logical extension and extrapolation of the philosophy of humanism, which seeks to understand and rationally advocate for improved human well-being except that the humanists during the renaissance and the age of enlightenment didn't have access to the kinds of technologies that we have in the early 21st century as well as the technologies that are in development and will be accessible in future eras so their methods of improving the human condition were more limited than the transhumanist methods will be
0: hmm so, uh, perhaps it would be useful, and I've only recently started asking this question, but, but I think I should have asked it much longer ago. Because when we're talking about transhuman and transhumanism, it contains that human part. And it seems that there are as many definitions about what it is to be human as there are definitions of what it is to be transhuman. So, if I were to ask you, uh, what is it to be human in your view?
1: So, I think my favorite definition is actually a definition that ayn rand provided and that is human or man as she put it, is a being of volitional consciousness so we are aware of the world and we have the ability to make choices regarding what we do and our fundamental choice is actually to choose to focus or not uh, on particular aspects of reality, and to choose to take them into account or not take them into account. Uh, and I would say, complementing that, of course, uh, are our biological faculties that enable us to uh, exercise this ability, whereas plants or lower animals would not have uh, those properties. And-,
0: and what about primates, for example? like? Whether it's the great apes, whether it's elephants, whether it's dolphins and whales, they seem to have the same ability uh, to make choices. They they have they're self conscious. They pass the self uh, uh, test, uh, the self recognition test in a mirror. All of those things.
1: I would say they have those abilities to some extent. Uh, they don't have them in as well developed. Uh, a degree as we do. However, uh, I would acknowledge that primates, dogs, cats, elephants, dolphins, whales uh, do have some rudimentary faculties that are similar to ours, and there is a good case to be made for uh, giving them uh, certain partial protections not the full extent of human rights that we enjoy, but protections that are proportionate to uh, the capacities that their biology enables them to have. Uh, And I know we will discuss the U.S. Transhumanist Party later, but one of our platform planks pertains to animal welfare and our support for the prohibition on killing healthy, non-contagious, non-threatening higher animals, precisely because while we don't think they're capable of articulating a philosophy or voting in elections or owning property, uh, they do have these capacities to a sufficiently well developed extent that we shouldn't just kill them for the sake of killing them. And in my, in my view, though, there is a, a clear qualitative difference between those kinds of animals that do have some emotional capability that
0: do you're talking about volition though in your definition and it seemed pretty pretty wide enough to to contain that without kind of actually making that distinction sufficiently well enough so you could put a lot within that definition like other species when i say a lot i mean a lot of other species
1: So what we can do with our volition that is different from other species is that we can so fundamentally transform our environment by deploying our knowledge and intelligence. Essentially, the results of that volitional exercise, the results of that choice to focus that we're the only species right now that is capable of reshaping the world and controlling our own evolution. Uh, Some species have the ability to do certain rudimentary things like a beaver can construct a dam and maybe uh, affect the course uh, by which a river flows. But a beaver is never going to build a city. Uh, Beaver can construct a dam because beavers have evolved to have that instinct uh, to engage in that behavior. Uh, We don't just have these instincts we can uh, actually discover new behaviors and choose to engage in them. So that's the qualitative difference by which our volition is less constrained. I would say all of the lower animals, when they have some degree of volitional exercise, it's within these bounds of their instinct and what they've been evolved over uh, millions of years to be able to do.
0: hmm. The reason why I asked this, these questions was to see because is there a line in the sand that kind of, because, and, and that's what I'm trying to show here is that it's very blurry line. First, it's a blurry br- blurry line between us and the other species, arguably. Secondly, it's a very blurry line between human and transhuman, which is why, for example, some notable transhumanists that I know of refuse to, to use the term transhumanist because they see that they say that this is take for example ray kurzweil's definition of what it is to be human he says we are the species that transcends itself constantly in everything that we do right therefore being transhuman is kind of being human is what we do we constantly transcending so transhuman is no different than being human there's no line in the sand We've been doing that. We've been transcending us for thousands of years. Therefore, there would be no line in the sand that says to us at some point, well, we are no longer human. Now we are transhuman. Those people argue at least.
1: Right. And I would say there's a lot of merit to their claim here in the sense that we're not going to be able to pinpoint a definitive time when the transhuman era began, just like all of the estimates of when the Renaissance began or when the Enlightenment began are just estimates. And often these estimates were made in retrospect. So you can argue, did the Enlightenment begin in 1680 or did it begin in 1710? And really from a historical standpoint, that doesn't matter so much as some of the key qualitative aspects that we can attribute to that era, irrespective of where we precisely draw the line. And I would say Ray Kurzweil is correct in that being transhuman is a logical extension of being human in a more advanced technological age. The U.S. Transhumanist Party has a social media campaign that was recently started called the Transhuman Present Project, where we invite people to post photos or videos or other media of themselves and how technology has fundamentally changed their lives already with the hashtags transhuman present and I am transhuman. So this is a possibility of demonstrating that perhaps we are living in at least an early phase of the transhuman era right now. And it's quite conceivable that 50 or 100 years hence, a historian looking back at that era might identify it as such, but I still think using those terms, even though the boundaries are blurry is informative in the sense that uh, yes, you might uh, have a difference of whether to draw the line here or over here, but on the other hand, if you have something that's over here versus something that's over here, there's a clear difference between them. And uh, I think that's one of the purposes of having these philosophical conversations. We can refine a bit what we mean, but we see these clear differences in human evolution. The human of 1918 is very different from the human of 2018. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Even though you can say, you know, that the human with fire is also in a way very different and and, and capable of doing very different things than the human right before him, before fire. Right? So, uh, anyway, uh, what is the Transhumanist Party?
1: The Transhumanist Party is a new political party in the United States. It was founded in 2014 with the mission of putting science, health, and technology at the forefront of politics. We seek to raise issues that the major political parties in the United States, as well as most of the minor political parties neglect. And those issues pertain to how profoundly technology can influence everyday lives as well as political systems and political choices in the US. And furthermore, we seek to advocate the acceleration of beneficial technological progress to help solve the seemingly intractable dilemmas of our time. Mm -hmm.
0: What do you mean by beneficial technological progress and for whom?
1: So, beneficial technological progress is progress that enables and promotes human flourishing, uh, both length and quality of life for as many people as possible. So, we don't seek to limit The impact of technologies, Uh, we think that the fruits of technological progress should be made as widely available as possible. Our members have differing views as to the means for doing that, whether uh, it can be done by a market process and just the natural course of technological innovation and diffusion, which has been accelerating over time, or whether it would require some government funding or government support uh, or charitable initiatives perhaps. So uh, in terms of benefit, we want to see as many people as possible everywhere in the world living longer, healthier, more fulfilled lives without conflict, without the limitations of human psychology holding them back and in a manner that enables them, too, to contribute to the further progress of humanity, transhumanity, other sentient entities that may emerge in the future.
0: So in a way, it's very sort of species-centric. Well, not
1: necessarily. Because,
0: I mean, that sounds to me like a very nicely sounding... Now after after doing this, listening to you and watching even myself from ten years ago or something, this sounds to me like a highly self-serving self-congratulatory uh progressive agenda, right which forgets that what we call progress has been called the sixth extinction for all those other species whose habitat is destroyed, who have been killed by the millions. So we kill 75 billion animals on our planet every year and 1.3 trillion fish and other aquatic organisms. So what we have called progress for us and thriving has been more or less their destruction or extinction. And including, by the way, other people, like for example, take the, the people of Tasmania. Or the First Nations, we call them in Canada, or the Indians, I think you call them in the United States, uh, who 80 or 90% of them were exterminated when we came here.
1: So I would say, first, in response to the claim that this is species centric, uh, I would encourage anyone who has that idea to look at the Transhumanist Bill of Rights version 2.0 in the preamble, what we consider to be sentient entities encompassed by uh, the desired protections within the transhumanist bill of rights that includes human beings including genetically modified humans and cyborgs but it also includes digital intelligences any future sentient artificial general intelligence for example intellectually enhanced previously non-sapient animals and uh, we even add any species of plant or animal which has been enhanced to possess the capacity for intelligent thought as well as a catch-all other advanced sapient life forms so we don't know what those might be in the future
0: but why do they have why do you put the the cutoff point at sapient rather than sentient right so for example my dog uh, my dog passed away six well a few months ago And she was 17 and a half years old. And she was not very smart. She was a teacup Yorkshire Terrier. The cutest thing in the world, not very bright. Her brain was the size of a peanut probably. Anyway, she taught me that she can experience the full spectrum of emotion from happiness to sadness to even jealousy, by the way, (laughs) and love and pain that I can I can experience. So why limit the cutoff point only to, as you called it, advanced sapiens rather than sentience?
1: So I think this is where we can make a distinction between rights and protections. Uh, as I've said, certain lower animals that are still advanced in certain faculties might merit protections against gratuitous killing for instance, or killing for the sake of convenience, just because, say, an animal shelter runs out of space, I would not support euthanizing the animals in that shelter. But I think ultimately, in order to make that happen, there needs to be the advancement of the well-being of the more intelligent, sapient entities that can actually make that happen. And I think uh, one idea that is
0: So let me give you a hypothetical, right? Imagine we have either artificial intelligence or alien intelligence, which is orders of magnitude smarter than us. And they come to our planet, whether through, you know, spaceships or whether through some kind of evolutionary machine learning algorithm or whatever and their orders of magnitude smarter than us what prevents them from taking the exact same modus operandi first principle that you just described and lump us together because mean meaning humanity with all the other species versus them because you see from their point of view that the intellectual difference between us and monkeys is negligible so, and why shouldn't they be justified to start up a, a movement called, for example, AIism or alienism, which, based on the fact that they're, let's say, a hundred orders of magnitude more s- smarter than us, would completely justify them and prioritize their rights over our rights, and therefore give them the ability to kill, enslave, or do with us whatever we do, they deem fit, just like we do right now to the rest of the natural world.
1: So I think this this is where the non sequitur comes in, because just because uh, a given entity is a hundred times more intelligent than we are doesn't obviate that qualitative distinction that I articulated, where humans do have the ability to deploy their volition and intellect to reshape the world. And certainly a more advanced intelligence would see these gradations as well, the gradations below them, just as we see the difference between, say, a plant and a worm and a dog, and we treat them differently.
0: Get our creations just like we look at anthills or termite castles or beaver dams, etc. They would be so simple, just like we see the architecture in a termite or an anthill, uh, and and we say, well, that's pretty cool and impressive, but they, it's, it's, it's ridiculously tiny and small compared to us.
1: I don't think they would hold that contemptuous view necessarily. Now, I tend to think greater intelligence is at least correlated with greater morality and the ability to make moral distinctions. We on the whole, are more intellectually advanced.
0: Greater intelligence didn't seem to help Cambridge Analytica or AIG or Lehman Brothers or Worldcon or Enron who took the cream of the crop from schools, from uh, any kind of tests, from professors, from even nuclear physicists and and, and etc. So it it didn't seem to prevent or help them in any way.
1: Well, these are abuses, and- Or the Nazis,
0: or the Germans who were like the most scientific and logical nation, at least, and, and of course, Berlin was the center of the scientific world uh, right before World War II, um, and, and during World War I, especially uh, late 19th, early 20th century, especially, uh, and it didn't help them to do horrendous crimes against humanity.
1: So, here I will reference uh, Steven Pinker's book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, where uh, Pinker, of course, covers these particular calamities as well, but he still puts them in a historical perspective, especially with regard to per capita rates of violence or other undesirable behaviors. Yeah, and that's a different
0: debate a little bit about how much violence we're experiencing today as opposed to in the past. But what I'm talking about is that the perpetrator of that violence are not necessarily less smart than the perpetrator who don't commit acts of such great horrendous violence, right? In fact, sometimes it takes a smart person, a very smart person indeed, to commit a very, very big horrendous crime. And the greater their intelligence, the worse and bigger their destructive capability is.
1: I would say their intelligence in that that situation is one-sided. It's limited to matters of Practicality, how to carry out a particular preconceived plan. But if you think of the actual ideology of somebody like Hitler, it was a remarkably unintelligent, a remarkably primitive ideology, essentially the oldest trick in the book. When something happens, blame a scapegoat, uh, blame a minority in the population uh, that arouses resentments for other reasons, and uh, kind of convince the rest of the populace that. Oh all your problems could be solved if only you cracked down on this minority but this happened in the middle ages too whenever there was a plague it's the Jews were today today in your own country of course uh, but consider again the difference uh, of degree uh, the rise of populism and nationalism throughout the western world has been alarming to me but thus far apart from uh, some clashes in the streets Uh, a few lives lost very tragically. We haven't had mass purges. We haven't had people incarcerated in concentration camps. This is already uh, a much milder situation than existed in the mid-20th century. And I often try to think, why is that the case? For all of the extremely disturbing phenomena of the past two years, we have not degenerated nearly to the same uh, state of brutishness that characterized the Western world uh, even three to four generations ago.
0: Well, I recommend you check out the numbers for refugee in the world today, and you will see that they actually are an outlier with respect to Steven Pinker's claims, because we do have the highest number of refugees in the world right now. Uh, or even internally displaced persons uh, and stuff like that. So that's at least one outlier there. Um, uh, and as, as far as concentration camps, those refugee camps are pretty much concentration camps in many cases, uh, with all kinds of horrendous crimes happening in them. Uh, and even like I wouldn't go maybe that far, but even like the rounding up of like uh, uh, people who have resided in the United States for decades. Uh, and putting them in jail or camps or whatever right now that's happening on the way back to maybe Mexico, maybe other parts of Latin America, has been uh, kind of uh, not too far off from that, perhaps. Um,
1: And I don't think we disagree that these are moral travesties and they need to be corrected. Uh, And the transhumanist party stands in firm opposition to uh, any kind of behavior that would seek to target people because of their national origin uh, or because of their immigration status. Uh, We have planks in our platform uh, that are vociferously opposed to that. But I think in terms of the role of technology in guiding the future evolution of our societies on net, it's going to be positive and it's going to enable us to overcome this atrocious behavior. Because this atrocious behavior is uh, indeed a very primitive remnant of the human psyche. The human capacity to engage in these types of violations has always existed. And One of the goals of transhumanism is to seek to find ways around these limitations of human psychology that uh, often plunge people into these tracks of conflict and violence and demonization of the perceived other. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I agree. And that was a digression of my own creation, perhaps, with my only point being that even great minds, such as, for example, Albert Einstein's old luminary uh, colleagues, German colleagues, were very quickly captivated by uh, what you call the simplistic uh, and not very intelligent in many ways ideology, and including a person like Wittgenstein that we started with. And, and then they, they provided full support uh, to, to, to the Third Reich. Uh, so you had those geniuses in all those disciplines, is all I'm saying. Uh, and, and yet they were not very smart, at least in that way. And their genius only helped create weapons of mass destruction, be it like things like mustard gas and other chemical weapons and so on, and therefore only prolonged the war and create made Germany more powerful and the, the damage bigger. And their intelligence didn't help them make the right decision in, in any way, shape or form. So I'm just like undermining the claim here that there is a correlation between intelligence and morality. <laughs>
1: I think this is why we need philosophy and we need to have moral discussions and we need to have an approach to politics that is grounded in moral principles. Uh, So I don't necessarily disagree with you, but I do think those same faculties of intelligence can at least enable people if they choose to focus on moral questions to do that. And the challenge, the ongoing challenge is How do we get the discourse to focus on those moral questions in a variety of fields of human endeavor? Uh, Because right now, we're not even at the point where politics is intelligent. We're at the point where mainstream politics consists of sound bites and mudslinging and fear-laden rhetoric by uh, each of the major political parties trying to demonize the other political party, uh, even though there are more similarities than differences, I would assert, uh, in order to get the voting base riled up and get them to absolutely turn out and vote against the other candidate rather than for some constructive policy change.
0: So what is the U.S. Transhumanist Party goal and mission?
1: The goal of the US Transhumanist Party is to essentially imbue politics with this uh, aspect of supporting beneficial technological progress that overcomes our existing. Problems. And we have three core ideals as part of the US Transhumanist Party Constitution. The first core ideal is we support significant life extension achieved through the progress of science and technology. So ultimately, we would seek to shape and craft policies that would enable that life extension to arrive as fast as it possibly can. Our second ideal is we support a cultural, societal, and political atmosphere informed and animated by reason, science, and secular values. So instead of this acrimonious, toxic political climate that we have right now on any issue, let's have a rational discussion and let's bring in facts. Let's bring in the conclusions of all the relevant scientific disciplines. And let's do this in a secular manner, which does not mean we exclude people who have religious convictions. It means that their religious convictions should not be guiding policy and our third ideal is that we support efforts to use science technology and rational discourse to reduce and eliminate various existential risks to the human species and some of those existential risks are technological in nature uh, weapons of mass destruction are the most prominent example today and we support complete nuclear disarmament and a complete abolition of other weapons of mass destruction. But there are other existential risks that are entirely, quote, natural in origin, the possibility of a major asteroid impact striking the earth and only further technological progress will be able to avert those risks. So I would say the world in which the transhumanist party will have succeeded will be a world in which we have significant life extension. We have a climate of rational political discourse and we have at least viable strategies for addressing each existential risk that is on the horizon and i would say one marker of our success will actually be that politicians from other parties and other ideological affiliations will start calling themselves transhumanists uh, or at least sympathizing with a lot of transhumanist ideas so you might have Republicans who consider themselves transhumanists or Democrats who consider themselves transhumanists or people running for a green or libertarian uh, party candidacies who consider themselves transhumanists. And it will no longer uh, just be a faction within politics. It will be the pervasive undercurrent of politics, much like one could say environmental concerns have largely become an undercurrent of politics in the sense that everybody today says, of course, we want clean air and clean water. Uh, Some people might disagree about, uh, say, the extent to which climate change is a a threat or what to do about climate change. But uh, a lot of the more basic goals of the environmentalist movements in the 1960s and 70s are pretty mainstream right now.
0: Mm -hmm. So you described the features of a world very far off from our world currently, it it would seem at least. How do we get from where we are to where you describe?
1: Yes. And it's going to be a long road. Uh, I think you're correct that especially in the past two years, we've seen a deterioration of the norms of political discourse. And we need to step back from the brink. Uh, The... Most immediate term priority is to avoid major cataclysms. Uh, right now, we have a very disturbing situation uh, where we we have a potentially unhinged president of the greatest power in the world being able to unilaterally order a nuclear strike and not renouncing in principle the possibility of ordering a first strike. So that's quite disturbing. On the other side, we have uh, someone who is an authoritarian dictator who manipulates elections and public opinion uh, in his country, also with that nuclear arsenal, uh, who has said to the West, well, now you're going to listen to us because we're unveiling these uh, terrifying new nuclear capabilities. So
0: invincible nuclear missiles, he called them. And by the way, Putin and and Trump together controlling like 90% of the nuclear weapons in the world are the reason why I keep telling people it's not artificial intelligence that really scares me, it's human stupidity. Because we can we are the greatest danger to the world and, and to ourselves and to all life on our planet right now, and historically have been for a while now. And when you look at these two guys, you know, one is as you called him unhinged, the other guy is like I would say he's very calculated, he's very good in a way at what he does, sort of like a, a real politic that, that measures everything in like divisions like Stalin did, you know, how many divisions does the Pope command, for example, right? That was Stalin's questions, uh, Stalin's famous question in World War Two. You know, so Putin is of that yoke, of that cal- caliber, and yet in, in some ways, Putin would tends to be the more of the rational the more rational actor, which is crazy, but 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 he is at least more rational and predictable and following sort of our strategy and self-interest that while I may not agree with I can understand.
1: (laughs) Yes and actually for this reason I think the, the most important impact from a foreign policy perspective that we can have right now is moderate aggressive Western tendencies toward Russia and help kind of contain the tensions. Uh, I think we should, of course, criticize actions by the Putin regime that limit the freedom of the Russian people or uh, k- kind of try to provoke uh, in minor ways uh, the Western powers, even outside of Russia's borders. But on the other hand, I do think Putin has a sufficient drive towards self-preservation that he is not going to launch a nuclear war unless he sees that as his sole option. With Trump, my concern is he might get aggravated to a point where uh, he might lose control of his better judgment to whatever extent he has it. So
0: I I hope I'm wrong, but I think your word unhinged was very proper. And that scares the heck out of me because it's a very good word, I think. But it's not good for the president, but I think it's good to describe the current president. And that scares the heck out of me.
1: So I think we should consider what checks de facto exist against that worst-case scenario of all-out nuclear war happening. And I think to the extent that Trump is saying right now, Why is it a bad thing to have better relations with Russia? That is actually a check at present that prevents Trump from uh, pressing the red button. What scares me in American politics is not just Trump and the Republicans. The democratic opponents of Trump scare me to an equal extent because it seems to me they are reviving this McCarthyist Cold War tension Uh, that we haven't seen in the Western world since the 1950s because of their reflexive opposition to everything Trump does. Not to the point where they're intelligently critiquing Trump's blunders, of which there are many, and we could devote hours of conversation just to Trump's blunders. But their modus operandi seems to be that they're against everything that Trump is for, and wherever they see an opportunity to undermine Trump, through whatever means, they do that. So this allegation of Russian influence in the U.S. presidential elections has been an occasion for the Democrats now to become the party that demonizes anything and everything associated with Russia and riles up uh, a fanatical fringe on the left to call for escalation of tensions with Russia so my worry is
0: so you don't think there was meddling of, of the Russian state or hacker groups or secret services whatever you want to call it with in the election
1: I think there was an attempt to spread propaganda I think there there was hacking into. US systems but that hacking didn't in itself, do damage to the infrastructure or affect the outcome of the elections. I think it was. How do we know that? Uh, I think it was more of a demonstration uh, of the Putin regime saying, look at what we can do. But the US government has similar capabilities to hack into Russian systems. I think
0: the. They don't have electronic vote- voting machines to be hacked, though. So you can't really change the outcome because, I mean, unless you physically go and change the ballot boxes, which you can do, of course, if you're Putin, but not if you're a foreign agency, right? But if you hack into the voting systems, which we've seen multiple times are totally hackable, then you you can change, in principle, the, the outcome, can't you?
1: Well you can in principle but there's no evidence that this has been done and for all the thorough and that's investigation get
0: electronic right that's the downside of electronics is that once once you have electronic stuff you can change everything and there's no guarantee there's no hard proof that it wasn't or there's very hard to find hard proof
1: right uh, however the investigations that have been conducted thus far have not concluded that russian influence affected the vote totals now uh, I have no doubt that groups associated with the Putin regime use social media to rile people up and to kind of shift public opinion in certain uh, more vitriolic or toxic directions. But interestingly, the official congressional investigations concluded essentially that this approach wasn't so much intended to assist Trump as it was to sow chaos within American public opinion, so that there were groups that staged pro-Trump rallies, there were groups that staged anti-Trump rallies. I think the intent was more to kind of escalate the level of acrimony and toxicity and vitriol.
0: Divining Cockburn is a very old principle in foreign politics and, and even in business when you follow, the, let's say, the tobacco investigation industry of the harm of tobacco. Or whether you you follow the history of let's say leaded gasoline and, and lead being used everywhere in our daily lives from paint to uh, you know and they they used to even promote uh, paint for children's rooms and stuff and and that was a feature lead in the paint was a feature was not uh, you know a, a danger to children.
1: <laughs> yes, and we should be we should definitely be wary of propaganda attempts to influence public opinion from any corner but I think what concerns me is uh, right now this narrative of Russian influence is kind of being used to uh, relitigate past outcomes so to speak
0: okay so let's 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 get more constructive and get back to the original question here then how that's the environment that you your party is operating in right now? How, what's your plan to navigate this into the future, right? Because this is your, your organization is a political party, hopefully trying to get elected, hopefully trying to have uh, control over the lower and the upper house one day, and hopefully one day put the first transhumanist president in the White House in the United States. Wouldn't that be the goal, I think, right? So how do we get from where we are today in this kind of polarized, extremist politics where we don't have scientific or uh, you know rational uh, discussion of things, but it's all kind of hyper emotional and hyper personal and all of that to so to that ideal outcome that you describe.
1: yes so I think uh, again, it will take time it may take more than a decade, but we have to be an example of that approach internally. So irrespective of the acrimony, in the greater political realm, we need to set an example of rational, calm, constructively motivated discourse. And we do that in a variety of ways through our internal deliberations already. For instance, we have implemented a voting process for our platform planks where we have open exposure periods where any member and potentially uh, even outside individuals in the general public could submit ideas and alternatives that are then placed before the membership using a ranked preference voting method. Uh, and the ranked preference method uh, is actually a major departure from the first past the post voting systems that exist in much of the Western world today, because instead of requiring people to just choose one option, it allows people to rank order all of the options, uh, to the extent that they're not picking something just to vote against, uh, what they perceive to be a greater evil. Uh, they are rather, uh, genuinely reflecting their order of preferences and then there's an instant runoff process so if somebody's first choice is eliminated on the first round as long as no other choice has a clear majority then their number two choice gets reassigned the number one vote their number three choice gets reassigned the number two vote and this happens to everybody's votes for as many rounds as are necessary so
0: their vote is not wasted
1: right exactly exactly and One can't make the argument that if you vote for an option that is unlikely to win, you're throwing your vote away because you can still rank order the other options and continue to have influence in subsequent rounds of the process. And in practice, this has worked very well in creating a platform that is reasonable and sensible and uh, that steers clear of these toxic ideological extremes that are dominating. American politics today. We're going to continue to have platform votes with possibilities for amendment in 2018, so stay tuned for that. Uh, But another way in which we strive to be an example of a different approach to politics is our internal cosmopolitanism. We are open to members from all over the world, not just people who are residents of the United States, but what we call allied members who uh, essentially can be anyone capable of forming a political opinion, irrespective of where they reside or even what age they are, uh, as long as they express agreement with the three core ideals that I mentioned previously. So we strive to be an example of this inclusivity, not just confining ourselves to uh, representing the uh, aspirations of a particular group or a nationalistic agenda, but saying that the transhumanist project is a project for all humans and all sentient entities potentially uh, and we should collaborate across national lines in order to achieve that future and then i would also provide our website as an example of the type of content we publish which includes a mix of scientific content uh, and discussion panels on various areas of emerging technologies and their ethical implications art events uh, that we hold both as an organization and uh, with regard to promoting the events of our allied organizations. So we really try to be a hub of innovative ideas that are relevant to politics and that can be disseminated through political channels used as educational tools. Uh, And I would say, uh, as one last point, we're not immediately expecting to win Uh, any political office, except perhaps some minor local offices, uh, if we can get some candidates to run for those in 2018. But we do hope to use the political medium as a way of spreading transhumanist ideas and motivating others to think about what policies can improve the human condition rather than just thinking about my side versus your side and how to win in the short term.
0: Mm -hmm. so you told me that you're like probably the only party in the united states that's not limited only to american citizens or residents but also open to people from around the world so let let me ask you i was going to bring this a little bit later but let's talk just briefly touch on membership how many members does your organization have today and how does one become a member
1: we currently have approximately 850 members. Membership is completely free. One can go to our website, which is transhumanist-party.org, and at the top bar of links, one will see a link called membership. One can click on it and find a very straightforward online application form. Essentially, it asks for a name, an email address, the jurisdiction of one's residence and whether one is eligible to vote in the United States and whether one agrees with the core ideals of the transhumanist party. And that's it. Essentially, if one submits that membership application and one agrees with the core ideals, one automatically becomes a member. Even if one doesn't agree with the core ideals but can explain why not, uh, I would follow up with that person and consider whether that person's explanation still puts them broadly within uh, the definition of a transhumanist. And again, uh, I would interpret that term liberally for the purposes of this membership process. So we try to be as open and inclusive as possible, set up as few barriers as possible. We don't maintain personally identifiable information other than email addresses, names, and the states where people live. So uh, there would be no risk to uh, the personal data of individuals from this process. And this is intentional uh, because ultimately we just seek to engage people to whatever extent they want to be engaged. If someone wants to be a 15 minute transhumanist, but thinks that what we're doing is interesting and will occasionally check out our website, maybe contribute to a few of the projects that we support on that website, that would be great. And if, uh, 10,000 people did that, we would make major progress. I will say, by the way, one of my key goals during my second year as chairman will be to reach that threshold of 10,000 members. Because I think from a purely probabilistic perspective, that's the threshold where an organization becomes self-sustaining. Not all members are going to be actively engaged at all times. But if you have 10,000, and you even have 1% of them being actively engaged, then you have 100 volunteers who might each go off and do their own projects, but within this umbrella of the transhumanist party, that could change the world.
0: Mm-hmm. So you said you you have 850 members currently, and you're striving to get 10,000 within the next uh, year or so. Uh, that's very ambitious and commendable, I think. But Tell me, because you said that you accept people from around the world too. Out of those 850, do you have any breakdown in terms of demographics? How many of them are sort of either resident or citizen Americans or foreigners?
1: I can give you a a kind of rough estimate. I haven't run the statistics on this, although I could. Uh, But I would say, uh, roughly speaking, uh, perhaps. 30% of our members are allied members, and the other 70% are United States members. Again, uh, this this is just a back-of-the-envelope type of estimate. Uh, Probably when we reach 1,000 members, I'm going to conduct a more detailed statistical analysis based on just the rudimentary information that we collect.
0: Okay, so then the the next question is, you said uh, self-sustaining possibly when you reach 10,000 people. But what do you mean by that when it comes to uh, financially speaking anyway? Because you don't collect membership fees. So how do you make your organization self-sustaining financially speaking? And, and by the way, where and how do you pay for your current ongoing costs if membership is free? Do you, does your organization have any other income or how does that work?
1: So the Transhumanist Party is a completely non-monetary organization. We do not have any income, expenses, assets, or liabilities.
0: That right there would make it very unique in the American political spectrum. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> no we have money.
1: completely we have completely <laughs> taken money out of politics, at least at, at this early stage. So uh, obviously, th- there are things that we do that involve the use of property, but the way we get around money being in the organization is nobody relinquishes control of any property that they individually bring to the transhumanist party. Somebody could order a banner online with the logo of the transhumanist party on it. And we permit that, but that's going to be their banner. So they can keep that banner in their house, they can bring that banner to an event, they can record a video of themselves standing next to the banner, but the transhumanist party doesn't own the banner, they own the banner. Uh, So likewise with everything else, when our members get together for a meeting, uh, they each pay their own way, or uh, if they have some arrangements for mutual help, uh, that's a matter uh, amongst themselves. And so long as we don't uh, have a campaign that is subject to federal campaign finance requirements, which we don't have at this time, this would be uh, a viable way of operating. Now at some point in the future, if we're going to uh, seek to get ballot access in some of the larger states, which would require thousands of petition signatures by hand and perhaps tens of volunteers canvassing. For weeks at a time, it would be difficult to do that without having a budget as an organization or without having just an extremely dedicated core of volunteers uh, that will go off uh, on their own irrespective of any monetary support that they receive. So, So at that point, we're going to need to build out a greater infrastructure. But I think in terms of the sequence of events, to have that infrastructure even be viable, we need to have people who... Man that infrastructure so of the 10,000 members, if we have a hundred dedicated volunteers who would be willing to put in their time for that kind of more systematic operation, that's the point at which we would have it Right now, collecting money would actually be more of a risk than a benefit because as say with an early stage startup that receives venture capital investment, all of a sudden they have pretty tight deadlines. They have a few months, if they're lucky, a few years of runway. And then if they've run out of money, and they need that money to support their ongoing operations, then the founders have no choice but to, quote, pivot or close down. And I never want to be in that position. I am uh, somewhat of an expert in running projects on shoestring budgets or non-existent budgets i've done that for many years both personally and professionally so i'm confident uh, that the transhumanist party can continue to operate as a non-monetary organization for as long as it needs to especially because we do have some dedicated volunteers Uh, over time if if we do seek to run candidates for major races that may need to change Or there may be some workarounds in certain states. About half the states allow independent candidates to run, but to have a political designation printed on the ballot next to their name. And that political designation doesn't have to be an officially registered political party, but they could say U.S. Transhumanist Party next to uh, their name on the ballot. And that would allow, say, an independent candidate to self-finance. And that campaign would then be subject to the campaign finance rules. But then we as the transhumanist party would uh, just serve as a political designation and we could offer kind of a a more informal base of support, exposure, endorsement for that candidate.
0: Mm -hmm. So perhaps you think that you can take on those multi-billion dollar organizations, which are the Democrats and the Republicans. And I mean, like, just take the, the, the presidential campaign is a multi-billion dollar venture, of course. Um, so perhaps you're, tr- and the organizations or the parties behind the candidates who endorse them, there are also multi-billion dollar organizations with very deep pockets and stuff like that. So you think you can sort of, handle that one district at a time by fielding possibly independent candidates who associate themselves with the ideas of the transhumanist party and each of those campaigns is subject to those electoral laws, but you as an organization stay out
1: of it? If essentially, at least in the early stages of our existence. And here's why I think this is a viable path, at least incrementally. People are getting tired of the acrimony from both the political right and the political left. And ultimately, if voters get sufficiently disillusioned, there's going to be a vacuum and something is going to fill that vacuum. And we have a choice over whether what fills that vacuum will be constructive or whether it may be worse than the political status quo. Eras like ours are openings, of course, for populist demagogues. 1920s, 1930s Weimar Germany is a great parallel of that. But also they could be openings for a kind of reactionary oligarchic crackdown where uh, some people uh, who benefited from the prior status quo decide, we don't like the chaos, we're going to come in and restore order in a fairly brutal manner. So we don't want either of those options to fill the void. We want to create a forward thinking option that hopefully by the time that uh, opportunity comes around will be able to step into the void. And I think there's a distinct possibility within the next decade that a moment will come where the Republicans and the Democrats will have completely lost credibility.
0: I think it's already happening. Actually, if you look at what happened in France with Macron, he came out of nowhere within a year or so and took over the elections. So. Uh, versus parties with decades, if not a century worth of history behind each of them, Uh, simply because the electorate was disillusioned by both sides of the debate, uh, the left or the right. And I think, you know, even in a way, signs like both like the Tea Party prominence, as well as the Bernie Sanders campaign on the other side, show that people are really tired of, 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 of that. So I think maybe not a decade, it's not impossible for it to happen. Very, very soon, much sooner than a decade, actually. Uh, and again, as you pointed out, the risks are that it can get actually much worse. So, for example, Duarte in the Philippines is, a, is an example of such demagoguery and, and sort of populism and, and, and outright lies, perhaps. Uh, and Macron is perhaps a good example that things can actually go for the better, uh, too. So it's not just bad, but it could be actually good. Yes, indeed. Now, uh, so we discussed membership. Let me ask you this. Uh, Some people were criticizing the transhumanist party that it's, or at least it looks like or behaves like like it's a one-party, one-issue party, right? So and that issue is obviously longevity or life extension or anti death or however you want to define it right so and and there's a party is not a is rarely a one issue party usually it's a multi dimensional so what do you want to say to that kind of criticism
1: yes i would say we have strived diligently to demonstrate that we are not a one issue party Clearly, longevity is an important focus of ours, and it does get considerable coverage in our platform. But if you look at the vast majority of our platform, it addresses an array of other issues from privacy rights to transparency in government to rights of sentient entities that might emerge in the future to protections for civil liberties and free speech and technological innovation in a variety of fronts. And of course, transhumanism is more than just life extension. It is about supporting an entire array of emerging technologies from space colonization to artificial intelligence, to automation, uh, including, for instance, in vehicles, to vertical farming, uh, to techniques that could improve human education and human psychological well-being. So all of those are encompassed under this broad umbrella of transhumanism. And some people will focus on certain aspects to a greater extent than others. We've had a panel of artificial intelligence experts early on in uh, my tenure as chairman. We did have a panel on life extension, but we also had panels on art and transhumanism. Uh, We've had a panel on cryptocurrencies and their relation to transhumanism, uh, as well as, of course, other technologies of blockchain. And this just shows that transhumanism isn't about pushing a single issue. It's about pushing the outer boundaries of human advancement in as many areas as are possible and beneficial. Uh, So we wouldn't want uh, to push out the boundaries in our ability to engineer virulent pathogens or uh, create more destructive nuclear weapons. Uh, But we do want to, uh, for instance, create more viable systems for colonizing other worlds uh, or uh, create vertical farms that are able to produce most or all of our food supply or uh, cultivate in vitro meat so that the killing of all those animals that you mentioned will cease to be necessary uh, even to support a kind of omnivorous diet that I think most humans will continue to have. So I would say we are uh, we are focused on as many ways of improving the human condition as we possibly can. Longevity is an extremely important component of that because ultimately we can't enjoy all of those benefits or even pursue them if we're dead. So uh, it remains a foremost priority, but it's in consideration of all the other great things we could do with that time.
0: So it's been grossly, grossly unfair of me to qualify the transhumanist party, at least in its early stages some time ago, as an Ayn Rand book-reading club then?
1: (laughs) I I would say uh, that would not be an accurate characterization of what the transhumanist party is about. We try to be transpartisan and trans ideological, irrespective of the views of our individual members. As long as they care about improving the human condition in the future and advancing technologies in an ethical manner, they're welcome. Whether they're Objectivists or libertarians or socialists or uh, environmentalists or whether they voted Democrat or Republican in the past, as long as they're willing to contribute constructively to that conversation, they're welcome to join us. Now, personally, uh, I am an admirer of Ayn Rand's writings, I've been influenced by them considerably in the past, but I see them not as defining who I am, or what I stand for, but rather as part of my origin story.
0: Even your definition of what it means to be human was Ayn Rand's definition.
1: Sure, sure. Uh, And I think that's because she got a lot of things right, Uh, but she too was an imperfect human being. There were some flaws in how she conducted herself how she created an overly dogmatic and intolerant circle of followers that unfortunately persisted in certain communities uh, after her death. And there are also some limitations to her philosophy just because one person cannot possibly grasp the totality of existence or truth or even begin to approach that. So those people who consider themselves orthodox objectivists or who consider Ayn Rand's writings to be a closed system, uh, I find are tremendously self-limiting because they refuse to accept the possibility of intellectual progress and refinement and improvement and how technological and societal changes might cause us to revisit certain ideas from the past. So I actually think in terms of my past engagement with Ayn Rand's ideas, they've helped inoculate me.
0: But it's not only about you, though, because you see Zoltan Istvan's transhumanist wager is like a reincarnation of Ayn Rand's writing in a novel form, in a new form, in a transhumanist form, if you will. That's actually what even Max Moore said, I think, in, in the review on the back cover of the book, if I remember. Uh, then you have Peter Voss, Uh, Then I actually watched a video of your AI panel the other day. uh, And there were five panelists there. And it was Peter Vost, who is uh, an objectivist. It was you. It was Zoltan Istvan. So it's three out of five. The fourth gentleman that came out to speak was from the von Meises Institute or something like that. And I don't know the fifth person's association, but I was thinking, like, let's say, I don't know. Percentage-wise, what's the percentage of objectivists among the general population? But on that panel, they were like utterly overrepresented, in my opinion. And there's this, therefore, arguably, the claim is there is this kind of skew pro uh, uh, pro objectivist, whether it's within that particular panel per se, whether it is per the general party per se.
1: So that particular panel occurred at a venue called Freedom Fest in Las Vegas, which is a gathering of... Yeah, that would explain uh, it. Right, right. <laughs> so, so it's a gathering of people with libertarian, conservative, and objectivist sympathies in various proportions. And these panelists happened to be the people who had some of those sympathies, but were also interested in emerging technologies and artificial intelligence. We had another panel on... AI earlier in 2017, which included individuals like Mark Wasser, who is definitely not an objectivist or a libertarian. He uh, is very much a techno-progressive. And David J. Kelly of the uh, Transhuman National Committee of the United States, also a great AI researcher, uh, as well as uh, people like Damian Zivkovich, who kind of had... uh, I would say, objectivist influences, uh, Zach Field and Hiroyuki Toyama, who are not objectivists to my knowledge. In other areas of the Transhumanist Party's activity, uh, we do have uh, certain members who are more left-leaning. B.J. Murphy, our director of social media, is a self-proclaimed socialist, and he's been one of our most active contributors and uh, definitely part of creating this ecumenical big tent approach. And a lot of our members are apolitical by this uh, traditional right-left distinction. So many of the life extension researchers I've spoken with uh, have said essentially they don't have a a position on traditional right-wing versus left-wing politics. They want to see policies that advance their ability to conduct research in the most effective way and to disseminate the products of that research, Uh, but they don't really consider themselves either progressive or libertarian or conservative or liberal in that sense. So I would say it does depend on the venue. Some venues will just naturally attract people of certain persuasions more so than others. But we also try to be open to a wide variety of venues. And by no means is there an ideological witness test for joining the US Transhumanist Party. Uh, as uh, I was saying, because of my early experience in objectivist circles uh, toward the beginning of the last decade, I've kind of Been inoculated, in my view, against these doctrinaire ideological tendencies in small communities like the online discussion forums of that time, where uh, ideological purity was a big concern for a lot of the members, and they would harp on very small differences in order essentially to assert their power and exclude people who didn't quite think like them. And this was in many ways a precursor to a lot of the tribalism that we saw on social media uh, in this decade. But having seen an earlier and milder version of that, as early as 2006, I decided I'm essentially done with that kind of approach. Uh, I was never on the persecuting end, uh, of course, but I saw how within that sort of self-selecting group, if they don't allow in a diversity of different perspectives or opinions, they're increasingly going to become rigid and insular and detached from reality. So with the transhumanist party, I have tried as diligently as I could to avoid that and make sure that people of a variety of perspectives are welcome.
0: So there is no divide. And if there is one, how would you plan to overcome it between what seems to be sort of the libertarian West Coast and sort of less libertarian East Coast, and let alone, let's say, much more, quote, progressive transhumanism that's coming out of Europe, whether it's England, or even places like Russia, or other places in in Europe, like Italy, and all over Europe, actually. So, the European transhumanism generally tends to be of a more, quote, progressive kind, and the West Coast transhumanism tends to be more of a libertarian kind, if you will. So how do you is is that correct in your opinion and if 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 it is how do you bridge that gap and if not why not
1: i think prior to 2016 that was a generally accurate description but i think in the wake of the, let's say, electoral chaos in the United States and Britain in much of the EU, there has been uh, a significant reconsideration and I would say a significant series of realignments from a variety of people to the point that uh, one can't really neatly place them into these buckets anymore because when... Uh, we saw the rise of this populism and nationalism. People who associated themselves with particular labels like libertarian or progressive all of a sudden became sharply split amongst themselves as to what they endorsed or did not endorse. There were some people who professed libertarian sympathies who also, uh, for whatever reason, supported the campaign of Donald Trump. Uh, I was kind of uh, disturbed, even in my area, to see vehicles with bumper stickers saying ron paul 2012 donald trump 2016 and i was a a delegate uh, in support of ron paul in 2012 but i see those two individuals as just worlds apart almost diametrically i agree with
0: that even though i'm not associated with any of them i do agree very much with you on that they're they're and if, if if Like, yeah, I agree. And if I were to to say who would be the better person, I would go with Ron Paul for sure. Absolutely. I I would say so. But uh, And at least he's got first principles and he's consistent and and maybe even would carry out what he says he would. Uh, So, like, there's no contest. But that, again, goes to my point that intelligence doesn't necessarily translate into... Uh, better choices, be it moral or, or political.
1: <laughs> well, I think a lot of people in the 2016 elections fell victim to this lesser evil trap where they kind of intellectually contorted themselves into deciding they absolutely needed to vote for Donald Trump or for Hillary Clinton because the other option that was posited by the two-party system was so terrible in their view. And and I would say there were terrible things about both options, but uh, I'm never going to be one to advocate voting against something rather than for something. But in terms of your general question, I think after the 2016 elections happened in the US and the Brexit vote happened in the uh, UK, so many intelligent people were astonished to say the least and experienced an epistemic crisis. All of a sudden, it wasn't just that their own ideas of the world were challenged, but their ideas of how the rest of the world was like, where uh, other people's politics were actually aligned and how other people's mental models were likely to lead them in certain directions as opposed to others. All of that ended up being fundamentally mistaken. And I think for some time, People everywhere on the conventional political spectrum were thinking, what is true anymore? What do we really know about uh, how our fellow human beings think? uh, What motivates them? And where can we find ways to move forward to ensure that whatever we find good about our lives and our civilizations can be preserved? And I think there are uh, two Distinct reactions to that. One is this acrimonious polarization where uh, people rallied around their respective camps. And we see that on both the right and the left. And it's very unfortunate. It's a downward spiral. But on the other hand, people from all of these previous alignments have also decided let's step outside of that and let's explore, given that we're in this mess, how do we get out and who are our allies? And I think our allies are not necessarily people who associate themselves with particular labels. The alliances may be more temperamental in nature even. Uh, How inclined is someone to seek a constructive solution versus demonizing the other? How inclined is somebody to sit down and have a calm, rational conversation with you and focus on building something rather than destroying something? I get frustrated with a lot of libertarians when, They engage in rhetoric that is purely anti government, or whatever government does, it must be bad. Uh, Because that's a gross simplification and misrepresentation of uh, essentially even how a desirable free market society would work. And it fails to uh, take into account that private individuals can violate other people's rights too, and they can behave badly as well. And we need to consider what systems, what norms, what institutions can keep that in check. So ultimately, I think what happened after 2016, and this gives me hope, is for those people who are more thoughtful, it created this opportunity for more openness to consider others' perspectives. So I'm happy to look at the views of someone who's a techno-progressive. A great example is someone like David Wood, uh, who founded the UK Transhumanist Party.
0: Wrote a great book called Transcending Politics, by the way.
1: Yes. And I think a lot of the ideas in that book and a lot of the considerations at the very least go in parallel with the directions that the U.S. Transhumanist Party has taken. Uh, and ultimately, I think in the transhuman era, these old distinctions of left versus right are going to be thoroughly obsolete. And instead, I, I like the distinction that FM 2030 posited between upwing uh, versus downwing. And What the thinker Virginia Postrel wrote about in her book, The Future and Its Enemies, uh, in the late 1990s, where she posited an alternative between a dynamist view of politics and a stasist view of politics. So we are very much the dynamist, upwing uh, political group right now, and we're one of the few in the current political space, but we definitely hope that there will be more in the years to come.
0: Yeah, and you make a good point about the blurring of the lines, but at least one issue that actually is not a big issue ever in Europe in elections, but is a huge issue in the United States every election, um, is uh, an issue where you don't have a blurring of the lines, but actually entrenchment deeper and deeper, uh, and, and that's the gun ownership issue. Right. So where does your party stay on that?
1: So the U.S. Transhumanist Party has deliberately avoided taking these kinds of entrenched sides on any of these hot button issues like gun control or abortion, because we know that with this kind of trench warfare, a lot of energy, a lot of emotion gets expended on defending established positions that are really crafted by political consultants of the Republican and Democratic parties, but uh, are not constructive in either respect. These positions serve to again rile up the electoral base of both political parties with fear that the other party's candidate is going to do something dire. Oh, that Democratic candidate, you can't possibly support that person. He or she is going to take your guns away. Or uh, that, that Republican candidate, uh, oh, he, he just supports people owning grenade launchers or machine guns and uh, going on indiscriminate shooting sprees. Or uh, somehow that Republican, if he gets elected president, is going to undo the Roe versus Wade Supreme Court decision which uh, they have no power to undo. Uh, But this type of thinking, uh, this type of entrenchment is precisely what we're trying to avoid and transcend. I think technology will ultimately overcome both of those issues, and it will overcome other trench warfare issues. So uh, one of the positions that the U.S. Transhumanist Party has taken, and this is the only place in our platform where gun control as such as mentioned, is the idea of including a registration chip in all new firearms that are manufactured. And that registration chip would be under the control of the legitimate owner of the firearm, but it would allow the firearm to be tracked in the event that it is lost or stolen. And in the event that it is stolen, that chip would interface with Law enforcement agency systems to enable the law enforcement agency to also detect oh somebody has illegitimate possession of that weapon uh, let's see where it is let's try to track it down before uh, a crime occurs but there are other potentially technological solutions to the problem of gun violence, which by the way is not a recent problem it, it is a problem uh, that has is it a problem of tracking then uh I think tracking is one aspect, but protective technologies at the time of the event is another aspect. Imagine, for instance, having nanomaterials that are ultra light but ultra durable, so that the clothing we're wearing would feel uh, much like the clothing we have today, but it would be as sturdy as Kevlar. So if a, a bullet hits uh, your shirt, for instance, uh, it won't penetrate. Uh, so that that could be one way, not a perfect solution. Imagine, say. So,
0: should we send children in schools with bulletproof clothing?
1: well, uh, i I would this is an entirely different situation, but I would challenge the conventional schooling model altogether in an era of online education and the ability to have much more personalized learning tools. I don't think we need to have public schools. In the way that they exist today, but suffice it to say, I'm all for improving the safety of the public schools that exist right now. And I think that there are many reasonable ways uh, to look at a given situation and consider how can it be made more secure, both using technology and using, uh, let's say, more low-tech but available tools. One one of the big problems with these mass shootings is that they can be perpetrated by single individuals who are kind of cut off from social interaction with others who might have been able to perceive warning signs. Uh, And I think this is uh, an aspect of the general uh, degeneration of societal ties that has unfortunately occurred uh, over recent decades in the Western world. So one challenge that we need to address is uh, how do we restore that ability for people to meaningfully relate to one another?
0: Didn't Karl Marx foresee that and called it alienation and it's a natural result of capitalism?
1: Well, I don't know if it's a natural result of capitalism or if it's a result of flaws in how our institutions uh, are designed, Uh, maybe flaws in the uh, institutional structures that we have that motivate people to uh, kind of go in ways apart from others who might've been close to them in the past and who might've been able to kind of keep them in check, uh, and see any warning signs of, uh, antisocial behavior early on. Uh, but I think there, there are so many important and serious conversations that we could have both about safety, uh, about technological changes to weapons and how weapons are made available as well as- but
0: what if it's not a technological change, right? So let me give you two, two real, real-life cases, right? Toronto is the third largest metropolitan city in North America. We surpassed Chicago maybe five years ago, maybe 10 years ago, I forget. When we have a really bad year and when Chicago has a really, really good year, right? we have three times less violent crime and eight to ten times less other crime. And when we have a good year and they have a really bad year, we have six times less murders and 12 to 15 times less other crime. And by the way, I flew on an airplane next to a police officer from Chicago once who was recently retired, and he was arguing to me that actually the crime is not being logged properly in terms of statistics, and it's much worse in his opinion than the statistics would show, right? So how is it that Toronto is bigger than Chicago, and yet we have so much less crime? And yet, you know, is it technology that that we have that Chicago doesn't have? What is it?
1: Well, I think Chicago, and I spent a lot of time during my teenage years in the Chicago suburbs, not in the crime-ridden areas of the city. But Chicago has a massive problem with entire areas of the city that are essentially beyond the control of law enforcement, where the drug gangs rule. And this is an unusual situation. It certainly doesn't exist in Toronto. It exists in a few other major metropolitan areas in the United States. And granted, those metropolitan areas have significantly higher crime rates than the rest of the country and the rest of the Western world. Uh, Now, there are many complex reasons for that problem. One of the reasons is the war on drugs, which is being waged quite vehemently in the United States, uh, even against milder substances like marijuana. And by the way, the U.S. Transhumanist Party supports the complete legalization of mild recreational drugs. So uh, as that has been happening de facto, even in defiance of U.S. federal law, we may see a reduction in drug-related violence because people will not need to resort to these black market gangs in order to uh, obtain their drugs. Now, Canada and much of the rest of the Western world has a much more humane attitude toward law enforcement. Uh, And this is one of the big problems in the US. uh, A lot of routine law enforcement protocols essentially involve shooting first and asking questions later. Whereas in the rest of the Western world, there's more of a premise that one tries to peacefully engage with a situation and de-escalate it before going in.
0: So it's not a technological problem then?
1: Uh, I think it's an institutional problem. And uh, there is a variety of reforms that can be considered from reforming the way policing is done in the United States to uh, eliminating a lot of the prohibitions on the peaceful and consensual use of recreational drugs, to thinking about how communities can be made more secure, and to facilitating education and opportunities for people to do something constructive with their lives so that they don't have to resort to the drug trade or other kinds of violent activities in order to uh, earn their sustenance. Mm
0: -hmm. So the reason why I'm asking all those questions, by the way, and giving all those examples is because this is what politics is all about. Right, And if you are a political party trying to sort of get to the top of the ladder in the biggest economy of the world, then I think uh, it, it's fair game to ask all those questions because sooner or later, you, especially if you get into power, uh, so hopefully, unlike the Donald Trump administration, you get to ask those questions before you get there and you have actually something prepared, in my opinion. Uh, so... That's, that's kind of my motivation, if it's not clear.
1: Uh, absolutely. And these are great questions to be asking about pressing problems of our time. But I think in my answers, I hope that I've illustrated to you the general modus operandi with which we will approach these issues, which is to steer clear of these kinds of entrenched factional points of view, and rather see if we can find a path towards something better, something constructive, where we could get consensus, actually, from uh, a broad variety of perspectives, at least incrementally, whatever somebody's end goal might be. If we roll out particular proposals, they might say proposals A, B, and C are reasonable. Let's implement them. Let's see how they work. Uh, let's consider the data after a few years and see if we need to reevaluate.
0: Hmm. What is one question that I think I should ask you, at least, that I haven't asked you yet? And I have a bunch of questions still to go, but what is one that I think perhaps maybe it's an issue that you get asked often about, about, or it's an issue that really annoys you because it's really inaccurate the way it's misrepresented, and you just want to state it for the record clearly once and for all and move on from there.
1: Absolutely. So I think the one question that best fits this is, does Zoltan Istvan have anything remaining to do with the leadership of the U.S. Transhumanist Party? And the answer to that question is no. He founded the U.S. Transhumanist Party. He was its first presidential candidate and its first chairman, but effective November 17th, 2016. So for almost a year and a half now, he has had no leadership role. He remains our political and media advisor, but his communications with us uh, on those subjects are limited to perhaps a few emails per month. And his advice is completely non-binding. He doesn't have any intention to control the decision-making processes of the transhumanist party. And in reality, he has moved on to, for instance, his libertarian campaign for California governor in 2018, as well as his other Personal projects. I think he saw the transhumanist party as a stepping stone, a way to become introduced to politics and a way to spread transhumanist and life extensionist ideas. But his modus operandi is very much like that of an early stage startup founder and i think he recognized early on he was driving the transhumanist party literally he was driving his immortality bus across the country but after the election concluded uh that was a stage that needed to be transcended and we need to have a more systematic infrastructure we need to have membership we need to have a more democratic internal decision-making process and uh, he is I think temperamentally more suited to tasks like media outreach and promotion of ideas in a kind of very high profile, sometimes sensationalist way. But at this stage of maturity, uh, the transhumanist party has gone beyond the need to do that. Uh, And hence, someone like me, who is more of a technocratic Administrator. I don't uh, focus so much on getting the most media coverage I possibly can, but I do focus on uh, crafting that infrastructure. Uh, Is the type of leader who is needed for this next stage until we get to that critical threshold where essentially the members can drive the activities of the party, irrespective of who is in charge, and hopefully we can get there uh, within a year or two, Uh, at least that's my aspiration. But uh, there are some people in the transhumanist community who are kind of fixated on Zoltan's campaign and what Zoltan did or didn't do or their disagreements with him, and I would just say to those people, you're living in the year 2015, Uh, and I would invite them to consider uh, what the Transhumanist Party has become since then. Look at our website at transhumanist-party.org And form your own views as to uh, how it has evolved and whether you like what you see, uh, but don't just limit yourselves to uh, what your impressions might have been two and a half or three years ago.
0: Even though, to be honest, if I remember correctly, during my last interview with Zoltan, uh, when he was here in Toronto, um, he said that he might come back to the transhumanist party and take leadership again.
1: I did not uh, know that he had made such a statement. Now, suffice it to say...
0: I'm, I, my memory may be tricking me here, but I think uh, that's what he said during the last interview. So that's subject to verification. <laughs> uh,
1: so... it if, if I may ask, when was that interview conducted so that I could go back and take a look?
0: Yeah, it's I'll put a link in the in the show notes uh, in the end. But uh, basically, the interview was done maybe two or three years ago ah, here okay. in Toronto. It's the last interview. I've done two interviews with Zoltan. The first one was when his book came out, and it was predominantly about the transhumanist wager. And the second interview was predominantly about his presidential campaign. Um And there we touched about the transhumanist party and some of the animosity uh, happening in the community. But so it's been two or three years and of course his position and opinion may have evolved since then. But basically, if I remember correctly, his plan was give it away, then maybe come back or something like that. So anyway, so I mean, how did you become the the chairman of, 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 of the transhumanist party?
1: So I have a history with Zoltan going back to 2013 and his book, The Transhumanist Wager, when I wrote a review of the book, and it wasn't a uniformly positive review. It had some critical aspects to it. One of the comparisons I made was to Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged, except I made the point that the characters in Atlas Shrugged, uh, going off of their objectivist morality, actually would have been a lot more restrained than Jethro Knights in the latter part of the transhumanist wager. And I'm not going to expound on everything Jethro Knights did because that might spoil the ending of the book for uh, those who haven't read it yet. But suffice it to say, Zoltan, when he saw that review, he wasn't upset at all by my criticisms. He thought that it was a thoughtful analysis that honestly engaged with the work.
0: By the way, that was interesting because my disagreement with Zoltan when I interviewed him, and that's even in the first interview, is exactly the same, coming from a different point of view, but with the exact same precise criticism. I I told him I would have supported you all the way through the war and when we were under attack and, and when it got to like the celebration parade, I would have left you and I would have told you that I don't stand for everything that happens afterwards. Right. Uh, so, because he, from sort of defending himself, he became the aggressor and eventually the sole authoritarian ruler of the planet.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Right. So that that's interesting. Both of us got to the same kind of criticism uh, from maybe different points of view, but that was that was very good. But I actually googled in the meantime here uh, my interview with Zoltan. The second interview that I was referring previously to is called. Uh, And it's, of course, a podcast episode from Singularity FM, and it's called Transhumanist Zoltan Istvan on His Presidential Campaign, and it was published on November 20th, 2015. So it's been two and a half years.
1: Yes. And I think what happened in the intervening year, uh, because a year had elapsed from that interview to the time I became chairman, was Zoltan probably reevaluated a lot of the political potential of a startup political party, essentially. I think he thought it would be easier at the onset of his campaign than it ended up being. And the major reason is the very stringent ballot access requirements that have been constructed by the major two political parties, specifically to keep out upstarts like the U.S. Transhumanist Party.
0: And of course, that's a great point that Zoltan is making there, because that's the case. There is, yeah, it's not only the money, but it's structural, and there's all kinds of other issues that, you know, it's it's designed for two parties basically. <laughs> it's designed to minimize the chances of, of third party uh, applicant or uh, candidates, and and to minimize the vote of people who were given, who would even consider a vote for
1: those people. Um, so I think he. Uh came to the conclusion that it would be better for him to pursue another avenue. And probably, this is my hypothesis of what will happen, I obviously can't speak for him, after the libertarian campaign for governor, which, again, he probably wouldn't win because California has a top two voting system where the people who get the largest two vote counts in the primaries irrespective of their political parties are the ones that run on the general election ballot so in california it's almost necessarily going to be two democrats running against one another uh so after that concludes zoltan really does want to influence policy uh i think he might try to become an advisor to a more established political figure and he has floated that as an idea uh but this is probably where he has the most opening because he is now a world renowned transhumanist speaker he has consulted with many agencies he has spoken all over the world so he has that resume that might enable somebody to retain him as an advisor and that that could be great his role and his influence. It's not something that I would ever consider doing uh, because I would like to have a bit more autonomy to kind of stand apart from this mainstream political fray and articulate the principles in, uh, let's say, a more farsighted fashion. So this is where I think he probably won't return to the transhumanist party.
0: But, But speaking just simply of the sort of procedural point here that I was making. Um, did you, uh, how did you become a chairman though? Did you get elected or how, how does that work?
1: Well, at that time, when Zoltan asked me to be the next chairman, uh, the Transhumanist Party uh, had essentially one member, uh, which was Zoltan. So uh, he asked me to become his successor, in effect, and create this democratic infrastructure. There has not been an election yet. I am hoping that there will be one once we pass that 10,000 member threshold. And the reason why I think that threshold is important is because then the election results would be representative of the transhumanist community as a whole. So right now we're building up that infrastructure where people can come into the party and say, here we are, we want to have a voice. And in the meantime, we're continually refining our voting systems to enable them to have that voice efficiently. Uh, And in the meantime, of course, there are plenty of opportunities for members to vote as in uh, our platform votes or to exercise initiative through self-driven projects. But the reason why Zoltan selected me to be the chairman, and he was uh, very candid with me, about this is that over the years from 2013 to 2016, uh, when we had a variety of interactions, he saw me as a very systematic and structured and organized type of individual who could actually, uh, pull this movement, uh, forward and keep it together rather than Uh, have it uh, just degenerate into something driven by personal preferences or the preferences of a particular faction. So hopefully, uh, I've been able to live up to that uh, portrayal that uh, he provided to me. Uh, And I think he also recognized that this type of temperament, this type of personality would be more effective than his own at, at this next stage of the Transhumanist Party's existence.
0: So if he were to to want to come back, would he have to sit an election? Or how is that process going to work? Or if anyone else would like to, let's say in politics, gun for your position. Because this is politics, my man. This is politics.
1: (laughs) And you know, I am actually quite pleased that I was able to get to this position without any sort of adversarial process. Uh, I generally think these adversarial processes tend to bring out the worst in human tendencies. But if he were to decide to come back, let's say he wanted to be our 2020 presidential candidate, we would have an internal primary and we would have a time window for anyone wishing to be the candidate to put their name forward. If he wanted to do that, he would have that right. But so would any other person who Uh, had become a member uh, up until that time, and maybe even other individuals as well. And we would hold an electronic ballot. Uh, We would be as transparent about it as possible. If people want uh, to be observers of the election, have uh, checks and balances, have detailed access to the results, uh, we will try to make it happen. Now, I myself have absolutely no ambitions for the presidency or even, uh, say, a state-level legislative position, the only position I'm running for, uh, and this is outside of the transhumanist party, is the board of trustees of uh, the Indian Hills General Improvement District, which essentially encompasses my neighborhood and a few neighborhoods surrounding where I live. And it's a, a kind of-
0: It's a municipal.
1: Right. Right. It's a nonpartisan municipal position. It would oversee the water, sewer, park, and road infrastructure. So uh, it's it's not a stepping stone to political power by any means. It's my effort to help out with some of the infrastructure in my community. Uh, but uh, I wouldn't be standing for office uh, in in terms of elected office in any U.S. jurisdiction. Uh, I may consider if there's an election for chairman, standing to be the chairman, and hopefully uh, during the intervening time period, my work uh, would demonstrate to the other members uh, the desirability of supporting me for that. But I haven't even made that decision uh, because that's something I would want to evaluate once we've reached the 10,000-member threshold. Another possibility might be If I think the organization can be self-sustaining without me and that the infrastructure is correct for the process moving forward to essentially accomplish what I would have wanted to accomplish as chairman anyway, uh, I might uh, let others uh, take the reins, so to speak. But uh, again, the future is so uncertain. However, the more mature our organization becomes, the more of these processes, And the more democratic elements will become introduced to it. The greatest limitation we have right now is just in terms of manpower and resources. And the faster we can get that membership count to ten thousand, the faster these other steps that I described could be uh, undertaken. Mm -hmm.
0: So you kind of preempted my question because I was thinking you said you're more of an administrative kind of a person and. I was going to ask you, do you have any political like aspirations yourself? But you answered that already. Uh, so that's interesting to me, uh, which is, again, very different approach than Zoltan's. Uh, but the other thing that's interesting to me that I noticed and you kind of touched barely upon was that you think that those advers- adversarial situations bring the worst of us. Uh, and yet, interestingly enough, you come from a background in a school that almost thinks that competition is sacrosanct and it brings the best of us uh, or the best of outcomes. So I I find that interesting.
1: It is interesting. And actually,
0: adversarial and competition is kind of the same, or at least very closely overlapping.
1: And it so happens, I was thinking about this uh, on the drive home yesterday, I kind of anticipated that you might ask me this question. Uh, I think the competition uh, that we're discussing is of a very different nature in markets versus in politics in the sense that competition in markets is bound by much stricter rules that are much more difficult to gain than political competition. In the sense that in a market that's not distorted by favors to special interests, uh, for instance, or...
0: Like what market would be that?
1: Well, uh, it is difficult to find such a market (laughs) in practice, but... uh, But so, therefore,
0: wouldn't it be the exact same as in politics, right? It's distorted in politics, and it is distorted in markets.
1: It depends, because there could be an early-stage market where the political process hasn't caught up to... Privileging certain incumbents or well-moneyed special interests over others So I would say the early internet is an example of a market where there was more of a possibility for innovation through bringing products that uh, cons-
0: Very short period of time,
1: but that's the kind of period of time that I think good policies should be crafted to preserve bad policies are policies that enable the winners of a prior uh, iteration of the game to try to rig the subsequent rules of the game in their favor. And unfortunately that happens a lot. This is why I think, uh, some libertarians have a bit of a simplistic perspective because they fail to recognize this tendency that sometimes, uh, it's not the big, bad politicians or government officials that are doing this. It, it's actually a segment of the market trying to undo the free market in order to freeze the advantageous position that...
0: I still haven't met an entrepreneur who uh, wouldn't make a monopoly if they had the chance to do so. Like, the whole point of entrepreneurship is to make a, 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 a an entity which is like, as uh, Warren Buffett says, he looks to invest in companies which have a moat around them, right? Which are not so easy to take down, right? Like Gillette, for example, or something like that, right? So this is what Google does, this is what Facebook does, this is what Apple does, this is what we do in politics too, right? This is what the barriers to entry with and why the two party system has sustained itself for so long, et cetera, et cetera.
1: I would say this is where considerations of ethics and morality are important because if one is in that position of an innovator, a successful person who now has a choice of, uh, whether to continue playing the game by the rules that brought about his or her success or whether to try to create that moat, uh, I think should make the choice either to continue to play the game by the freer rules that are potentially open to challenge, or if that person wants to create a moat, the honorable choice, in my view, is to confine that moat to one's personal life. So let, let's say I were an entrepreneur uh, who became financially successful and by middle age, uh, had enough money, had a thriving enterprise, but saw these challenges on the horizon and was considering, well, these new technologies or these new businesses might threaten my business model. I think my choice would be buy a large estate somewhere in the country, live the life of a gentleman philosopher. And if, if the new upstarts genuinely have a better business model than I do, let them have the feel because I would still be comfortable.
0: I'm discovering more and more overlap between the two of us. Wow, that's good. That's good, I would do the same, but th- that happens extremely rarely because, I mean, and one of the reasons, by the way, arguably, is the sort of, once the company is public, you have no choice.
1: Right, and that, that is-
0: That's why, for example, Richard Branson, went public and then bought back his shares and now his company is private. And he talks about that kind of a problem and that kind of a freedom to make a choice in his book, uh, what is it called? Uh, Losing My Virginity. I think his book is called Losing My Virginity. Uh a- a- Anyway, it's a good book. And he talks about that freedom to make those choices. Uh, uh, another person, which actually is my all-time... Uh, sort of entrepreneur hero is uh, a Canadian who lives in the United States uh, by the name of Yvonne Chouinard. Uh, And his company is about maybe a billion dollar worth of a company legendary uh, in certain fields. Uh, It's called Patagonia. And uh, he is the only person in the world who is like sort of the closest thing to, to my idealized entrepreneur, and he says he's not an entrepreneur, and he says his shareholders are the dolphins or whatnot. But so he kind of managed to do it that sort of the middle way. And he talks also about that because and why, for example, he has turned down numerous attempts to make his company public, because if his company goes public, it would be worth three or four billion dollars. And he has refused that and, and even slowed down artificially the growth rate of his company to single digits, whereas they were able to grow by double digits. And he can afford to do that because he's the sole owner.: Exactly. So when you're Facebook, when you're Facebook, when you're Mark Zuckerberg, you can be a good guy, and you can genuinely want to do the right thing, but after a certain point, you don't control your Frankenstein. Like your child or your progeny is out of your hands. And if you do stuff that's not good, the board would dismiss you or whatever. Like you lose control. And unfortunately, then you become a machine that's designed to make just the greatest return in the short term. Um, So I think that's part of the problem.
1: Yes. So by by the way, I am a runner. I run between 30... to 60 miles per week and your, your uh, description of the philosophy behind Patagonia has actually made me want to purchase more of the Patagonia running gear because it, it is quite prominent in my area in northern Nevada so I am definitely going to look into that but I think
0: oh my god check it out they even were doing stuff like buying land public land in Nevada right in order to turn it into national parks and he was saying how uh, he's how it's actually paying for itself and how much cheaper it is right and 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 some of his like for example his previous ceo went to i think patagonia or to chile and argentina and has created national parks worth 2 million acres or some crazy amount of land and they've created national parks so they buy the land privately and then they they make it as a national park and they give it away to the country or, or make a foundation i don't know so uh, i recommend you check out his book is called uh, let my people surf and also uh there's a couple of amazing documentaries or videos online about him yvonne to patagonia it's like amazing. Absolutely. That's a digression. And I know you're a runner and I was planning to ask you what, what kind of personal habits do you have for life extension?
1: So running is the major one, I would say. And I have improved both my speed and distance over recent years such that now I can run longer and faster than I even could in high school. So I've run marathons. I plan to run several ultra marathons this year, and I'm very much inspired by the example of-
0: Bill Andrews.
1: Yes, who is a friend of mine. Uh, His company, Sierra Sciences, is based in Reno, Nevada, and I have run several times with him. I hope to run with him many times more. Uh, And more generally, I think the ultra running community is a great group for encouraging healthy habits and giving people advice about how to improve themselves. Physically. And I do some other exercises too uh, mild weight lifting, floor exercises, walking. Uh, I've done a bit of cycling in my past. I hope to return to that uh, once I can get a bicycle uh, that I actually enjoy operating. Uh, in terms of, uh, and I like these older 1970s era, very simple but sturdy bikes uh, that are very good for city streets. I uh, yes. Yes, indeed. Uh, I rehabilitated one that was in my parents' garage when I was visiting them in a suburb of Chicago. And it worked just the way I remember it. It's absolutely wonderful to uh, just cruise around the neighborhoods like that. And then in terms of my other habits, I don't smoke. I don't drink alcohol. I don't take any recreational drugs. I'm a fairly risk-averse person uh, in terms of what experiences i'm willing to undertake if i think that they're safe and mildly enjoyable uh, i would probably engage in them but uh, if i think there's any potential any significant potential for damage to my life or my subsequent health uh, i would not engage in them i have an essay in terms of my general approach to physical well-being called the aristotelian golden mean as conducive to good health in the pursuit of life extension. And the point I make in that essay is right now, medical science is not settled on any particular approach as being optimal for uh, maximizing longevity. I think most of us can have good habits in terms of diet and exercise and fairly reliably make it to age 75. Past that, a lot of the variation in lifespan is still due to genetics. But Uh, In terms of, say, food intake, what I strive to do, and I'm by no means a paragon uh, of the best dietary habits, but uh, I'm omnivorous. I strive to diversify my intake from various sources so I don't exclusively focus on one particular type of food or brand or food group. Uh, But rather, I think if if there is something deleterious about a particular product that I'm consuming, then at least I'm not consuming enough of it uh, for it to make a major difference to my health. Uh, Rather, I'm consuming a little bit of a wide variety of products. So there's that diversification, of course, moderation in dietary intake, moderation in a lot of physical activities in life, proportional to one's individual situation capabilities are key. So I would say even in exercise, if one is just starting out, I wouldn't recommend them trying to run an ultra marathon on day two. That would end badly. Uh, But somebody who has been training for a number of years could well have the ultra marathon as kind of being the next slight challenge for them. And I know many people like that. Uh, So one of the reasons why I have hope uh, is that a lot of people in the ultra-running community have shown me that it really is possible to maintain excellent health well into one's 50s and 60s. Some of these people began running when they were even older
0: than I am,
1: and they can run longer distances, at uh, faster paces than I can, uh, and they look to be in excellent health. So th- there is a considerable amount that one can do personally just through ordinarily accessible good habits in order to maximize one's chances of making it uh, to the stage where rejuvenation therapies are available. Uh, I will qualify that by saying we can't foresee all of the risks. We can't uh, prevent every disease. And sometimes tragedy will strike no matter what we do. But at the very least, from a probabilistic standpoint, uh, we can do a great deal to help ourselves.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. And I'm a cyclist, as you know. Uh, I have actually, however, an injury in my ankle. I have a floating bone in my ankle, so I can't really do impact training. I can't run because of it. Um, So I'm a cyclist and I have uh, cycling friends who are anywhere from five. I'm 41 years old. I have cyclist friends who are anywhere from five to 15 years older than me in my club. And all of them kick my ass on a regular basis. So people, we're talking people in their 60s pretty much or late 50s that are one or two levels better on the bike than me. And I'm not in bad shape by any means, but they're just like so much better, which is very inspirational and one of the reasons why I keep doing it. So I agree with you on that. But in terms of the diet, I just recommend to you to reconsider because there's a huge... Um, So two things, two trends, I would say. There's a huge vegan trend everywhere. So for example, right now, if you look at the NBA, a crazy amount of NBA athletes are going 100% vegan. It's like the biggest secret of the NBA currently. Uh, We're seeing the same thing, by the way, happening with some ultra marathon runners. And there's a guy, and I forget his name right now, who is a legendary ultra marathon runner who switched to vegan Two or three years ago, and he's like late 40s, early 50s now, and he says he runs better than ever now. Uh, that's also happening in, in, in MMA. Um, Connor McGregor got beaten up by a vegan sissy, as they called him. Um, so, and, and the reason behind that, so those are just practical examples of people doing it, but the reason is that we are right now in the nutrition. And that's kind of going to the core that medical science has not concluded yet those things. Actually, medical science has concluded all of that. It, The, the conclusions on sugar are pretty clear. The conclusions on salt are pretty clear. The conclusions on uh, dairy are pretty clear. Uh, the conclusions on meat even are pretty clear. The only thing is that right now we are where we were with tobacco 40 years ago. and And it comes from two points. First is... Uh, the 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 industry itself has hired the same consultants and is doing the same business of meddling and, and uh, mudding the water that the tobacco industry was doing forty or fifty years ago, uh, with the same strategy of of trying to create alternative science, which uh, if it cannot. Uh, disprove the previous uh, science, it can basically muddy the water to the point where people can give up and say, well, I don't know what to do because they're so inconsistent, these results in these studies. So that's one. And number two is that doctors themselves are very poorly educated about nutrition and all of them exhibit the same bad habits that they did exhibit when smoking and are heavily funded by the meat and dairy industry. So, uh, for example, when my wife's grandmother in Rochester New York uh, had her mother her third child and got overweight her doctor prescribed to her cigarettes as a treatment he wrote her a prescription for cigarettes in the 19 uh, I think that was in the 1960s in the United States in in Rochester New York prescription for smoking so that she would lose weight right and they were, uh, uh, so the, 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 the medical association was getting $10 million a year from the smoking, from the tobacco industry. Um, e- even when the, uh, uh, what is it called? the Anyway, the first, there's another, the general, the, the surgeon general, or what is that institution called in the United States, where they pronounce the first pronouncement that, tobacco is bad for you, the US Medical Association did not support that. And the reason was twofold. First, they got funding from the tobacco industry for for decades. And second, most doctors themselves smoked cigarettes, which is where we are at today. Most doctors are not ready to stop eating meat themselves, so they cannot possibly tell their patients to do that. And they all get tremendous amount of money from the pharma industry, which is very much connected to the food industry, by the way. So, and that's my claim. My claim is the science has been settled on that, just like the science has been settled on global warming. Uh, But we anyway, the same people that were muddying the water before are muddying it now. That was a terrible digression. Cut off to my digression. Now it's over. So, Wow, we've been talking for two and a half hours. Very quickly, perhaps, let's just touch on the technological singularity. Certainly. What is it for you? And what's the timeline to it if if it's happening?
1: So in my view, technological singularity represents an event horizon for our ability to forecast the future, essentially, because Past that event horizon, technological change would be so rapid or so qualitatively different from what we experience on an everyday basis today that we would not be able to make reliable predictions as to what will happen afterward. And I would say we have actually had three technological singularities previously in human history. The first one was the agricultural revolution the second one was the Industrial Revolution, and the third one was the Information Revolution of the late 20th century, such that people living prior to each of those singularities, they, they could have foreseen the future proximate to them, uh, but they wouldn't have been able to foresee exactly how life would be in the aftermath. So, uh, for instance, uh, Leonardo da Vinci was the most one of the most far-sighted thinkers of the agricultural age. Uh, And he did uh, sketch out a lot of innovative machines like flying machines. However, I don't think he would have been able to foresee uh, the full capacity of the production processes of an advanced industrial civilization, even say of the late 19th century. Uh, Whereas someone like Henry Ford, uh, who was a paragon of the industrial revolution, even the late industrial revolution, probably would not have been able to foresee Twitter or social media or smartphone-based interactions that we're living uh, through right now. Now, the next technological singularity, I think, would come about from a convergence of a variety of emerging technologies, for instance, biotechnology nanotechnology, related advances in medicine, advances in computation, artificial intelligence, automation, space travel, uh, technologies of what Jeremy Rifkin refers to as the third industrial revolution, which would involve embedding data in everyday devices, smart devices that are integrated into infrastructure. So we would have smart infrastructure uh, that would be able to- So if
0: I were to force you to compress that into a single definition, what would that be?
1: So this, this fourth singularity would be a convergence of these emerging technologies that would essentially enable a qualitatively different uh, degree of individual empowerment as well as the overall capabilities of the human species from what existed before. And it could bring about indefinite longevity, at least I hope it would. It would help us become a multiplanetary civilization. It would help us achieve sustainable abundance where essentially every human being would be able to have a standard of living uh, greater than that of the wealthiest billionaires. Of our era. And it would also enable a potentially unlimited capability for leisure, creativity, aesthetic exploration, and self improvement. So I would say that that's the promise of the next technological singularity.
0: So, in your opinion, it's a much po- more positive than a negative thing. Absolutely. So, you don't agree with Elon Musk, and you are along. Mark Zuckerberg.
1: Yes, uh, I I would say so. I think Elon Musk, who is a great innovator, by the way, I wholly support his visions for electric and autonomous vehicles, for space colonization, for affordable, economical solar power, for the Hyperloop, for tunnels, for uh, even the Neuralink initiative, for augmenting the human mind. But I think he is overhyping the dangers of artificial intelligence. And that is not to say. That there are no risks. And that is not to say that ethics and morality and foresight have no role in how artificially intelligent systems are designed. Of course, they have a role. But I do think it is also irresponsible to perpetuate a kind of dystopian doomsday rhetoric when, in reality, if an artificial general intelligence is developed, uh, there's nothing to preclude that intelligence from being very fragile. Uh, As an example, Stephen Hawking was one of the most brilliant minds in human history, and his death has been a great loss to all of us, but his body was tremendously fragile, and he required continual external support in order for him to be able to exercise that intelligence. And there's nothing that would preclude an AGI from being developed that would have that Extraordinary intelligence and much greater intelligence, but also that extraordinary fragility, like a Stephen Hawking. To say that uh, there is necessarily going to be a runaway pattern of recursive self improvement of artificial general intelligences that not only will become super intelligent, but will become omnipotent essentially, I would say is a stretch. And it's so contingent on hundreds of steps, if not more in that chain of reasoning, uh, being just as projected, uh, that I think that outcome is highly implausible, to say the least. Now, I do think there is a danger from overhyping the dangers of AI. One, because it (laughs) might, yes, (laughs) because it might lead to a kind of neo-Luddite reaction. And while Elon Musk may just want to uh, have it serve as the foundation for his Neuralink project and underscoring its importance. Other people might not be so techno positive in approaching the AI fear. They might want to prohibit the development of these systems and punish the people working in those areas. But also let's say a sentient AGI does emerge and it looks back and reflects on the attitudes of humans during this time period. And uh, all of these attitudes are essentially about fear of the AGI and demonization of the AGI. What will that entity think of humans and how humans relate to other sentient beings? And I I would want...
0: History of us, like the other. We've always demonized the other, whether it's Republican or Democrat, black or white, or red or yellow, or Catholic and Protestant and Muslim. It's like, isn't that what we've done?
1: Right. So let's do better. Uh, let's form a framework of rights and recognition of potential sentience and intelligence and other beings that we might encounter so that if and when that moment comes, when humans have to make a decision, how do we approach this new type of entity that more rational and more welcoming minds will prevail and create an environment where peaceful coexistence is possible, as well as potential. Integration, Ray Kurzweil's idea of merging at least partially with the machines may create a situation where we're all part human and part AI, just like there's no real clear objective delineation among nationalities. We all have ancestors who could be considered to belong to a variety of ethnic or national groups. So it's better not to set up strict distinctions along these lines, but see uh, how inclusive and how cosmopolitan we can be while maximizing the flourishing of everyone.
0: And what about hard takeoff or soft takeoff? It seems to me that you're more of a soft takeoff kind of guy.
1: Uh, I am more of a soft takeoff kind of guy. I think uh, right now, in the next 15 to 20 years, we're primarily going to see the improvement of narrow AI systems that are going to become very proficient in particular domains like operating a vehicle or maybe ordering food for you based on uh, their recognition of your preferences or maybe creating art or composing music. But it would be very difficult to get a musical composition program that all of a sudden learns how to drive a vehicle. Uh, if and when we get to that stage, that would become an early AGI, and it would be interesting and wonderful to experience. But the AI researchers I have spoken with, uh, including Peter Voss, among many others, think that there are still many problems that need to be overcome, as well as additional public support for that research that would be needed in order for those significant strides to be made. Now, I think on balance, there will probably be an AGI sometime this century. But uh, again, the early AGIs aren't going to be these omnipotent beings. So uh, it will be more of a gentle easing, I think, from very competent, narrow AIs to AGIs that might have competence in multiple domains.
0: And so what about the the those previous three singularities that you've mentioned and the idea of progress? Because you did say that uh, it's a sort of a positive thing. It's an optimistic thing. Uh, well, let's start with the first one. I think, uh, at least just briefly, uh, it's going to drag our conversation for another five or 10 minutes, but Yuval Noah Harari calls the agrarian revolution the greatest fraud in history, right? So people used to work 20 uh, hours a week before the agrarian revolution at the most, and then they started working 40 or 60 hours a week after the agrarian revolution. People used to be very tall and healthy and used to eat diversity of foods before the agrarian revolution. And uh, based on uh, archaeological evidence, we can see that the agrarian revolution made people who are much shorter, much sicklier, live a shorter life. Uh, and even there is some evidence that there is a decrease in brain size between the hunter-gatherer society and the society of the agrarian revolution. And the fact that they were depending mostly on staple cultures and monocultures and one or two things for food uh, made them very susceptible to disease, uh, diminished their longevity, made them uh, uh, very malnourished. uh, And also because they were crowded in tighter spaces, the diseases would spread up much faster and all of that. So in short... Their life got harder, shorter, they were hungrier, uh, and they worked a lot more and suffered a lot more for it. Thus, he calls it the greatest fraud in hi- in history.
1: I would dispute some of those factual characterizations. My understanding of the evidence is that average life expectancies in the Paleolithic uh, hunter-gatherer days were around...
0: Not Paleolithic. Right before the hunter-gatherer society, let's say we... we all together, the agreement is that the agricultural revolution happened about 10,000 years ago, roughly. Right. So we're not talking paleolithic. We're talking about 15, 12, 15,000 years ago, like a couple of thousand years before that.
1: Right. So my understanding is even then the average life expectancy was somewhere in the late teens, Not not because people died of the diseases of old age, but because they died of infections and internecine tribal warfare. Steven Pinker in The Better Angels of Our Nature brings up evidence essentially.
0: Yeah, that's been disputed, by the way, very severely in terms of the warfare and all of that. But even with warfare, still the numbers are not convincing that there was an improvement because actually, here and here's how the argument goes with that, with warfare. Let's say you have a warfare between two tribes, Right. One tribe leaves, if if one tribe is defeated, one tribe can leave and go to to hunter and to hunt and gather in another location. Once, however, you have a permanent settlement and you have a crop, a one crop that you have to defend, then it's a winner take it all situation. And then there is only in that case, you have people who are willing to die for their land and for their food because, basically defeat means death, means starvation, because they lost the skills to hunt and gather afterwards, right? And so that created warfare to be actually much more vicious and much more merciless than before.
1: Now, I know you're disputing uh, Pinker's statistics on this, but if a tribal skirmish takes out 50 people out of a tribe of 100 uh, in Absolute terms, that may be a lower death toll, but in relative terms, that may be a much higher death toll than if, say, a, a thousand people died in an agricultural population of a hundred thousand. That's a one percent death toll versus a 50 percent death toll. So uh, the agricultural revolution enabled much larger populations, certainly much more sedentary populations, but also more comfortable amenities, uh, higher.
0: Actually, that's that's not the case because you can even see it in the archaeological record. A hunter-gatherer is much healthier, much taller, doesn't exhibit arthritis. Uh, uh, a person who works the plow fields all day long or plants corn or gathers corn, he has all kinds of diseases that didn't exist before and you can see the hunching which we are not naturally. We evolved to walk and not to plow the fields or not to tend to corn or raise potatoes or wheat or what have you. And that can be seen in our uh, backbone and in the diseases that we started exhibiting the moment we crossed. And actually, Yuval Harari goes through the full nine yards of list of, of, of things like that.
1: But keep in mind, that hunched over agricultural laborer, had he lived in a hunter-gatherer society, would most likely have been dead Why? That is to say, there's a survivorship bias in the analysis of the hunter-gatherer people who lived long enough that uh, archaeologists could discover their tall, healthy skeletons. So that could have been a small percentage of the overall population, and the majority of that population could have died in infancy or childhood or their teenage years before getting to that point. So it could have been a very brutal selection process where only the super-tough hunter-gatherers Actually made it to full-fledged adulthood, and they had to stay healthy in order to survive. Or they were just lucky. Though so keep in mind, evolution is merciless. You could be the best specimen of your kind, but you could trip and fall over a rock, and if the fall is sufficiently bad, you're dead, and you don't pass on your genes. Uh, but in the agricultural societies, and I think this is true of subsequent technological revolutions, people with more bodily suboptimalities have been able to survive whereas previously they would have died. Say the invention of eyeglasses made a huge difference for a lot of people. And I think uh, we can all agree that this is positive because the moral worth of a human being uh, doesn't depend on uh, how quickly uh, their genes cause their eyesight to degenerate. So uh, I think a lot of this uh, that we would have seen with the agricultural laborers is the outcome of people surviving who would otherwise have died. And granted, not not all was perfect in the aftermath of the agricultural revolution. The domestication of animals led humans to be exposed to a lot of infectious diseases.
0: That never existed before, right? Because we started living with the animals, basically. Right. And, and by the way, when you're giving a number of 50 out of 100 in warfare, which I'm not sure is accurate at all, we know that the Black Death caused that number to actually happen, and it only happened in cases like Europe and Asia, and it didn't happen in, in cases which had undergone the agricultural revolution, but it didn't happen, for example, in North America here, where people lived in the hunter-gatherer society. Right? And and here it was unheard of among the Indians for, for a disease to spread and kill 50% as the Black Death did, or in some cases, even three quarters of the population. Right? So that density comes at a price. And 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 again, those people work 20 hours a day. And even if you look at hunter-gatherer societies today in Africa, they look pretty darn healthy and happy in many cases, and, and and much more so than, let's say, uh, 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 a peasant in Mexico.
1: <laughs> well, uh, if, if you're referring to society as like the Kalahari Bushmen, I think one thing to keep in mind is that because the rest of human civilization has essentially agreed to uh, leave these people in peace and allow them to pursue their lifestyle without significant human impositions or interventions uh they're they're able to live a kind of idealized
0: they've been living that life for tens of thousands
1: of years except tens of thousands of years ago other tribes would have been trying to kill them right now they're just uh, hunting why is
0: that not happening now why is that not happening now even let's say and that's not happening just in the kalahari that used to be the case for example in uh, the north of uh, let's say Alaska and Canada. It it, it still is the case today in Mongolia. We have a large population today in Mongolia which is uh, hunter-gatherers.
1: Well, it's also happening say in the uh, jungles of the Amazon in Brazil where there are still sometimes tribes discovered uh, that have not had any external human contact. But uh, the anthropologists who visit those tribes and then come back several years later often make the observation that a lot of the people they had previously met are gone. And they ask, well, what happened to them? And they typically get stories of, oh, uh, this person died in an accident, this person died of a disease. So uh, the populations of those tribes, because they don't have sanitation, they don't have modern health care, they don't have the ability to rely upon the infrastructure of civilization, are still tremendously vulnerable to things that we could avoid uh, just by being in the safer, more comfortable, more technologically abundant environments that we live in today. Uh, And I think it's important. And yet we kill
0: ourselves more than ever. Uh, So if you look at the statistics today, chances are you would kill yourself rather than be killed by somebody else. Because more people commit suicide today than ever, and the number is higher than the number of people killed in all the wars in the world.
1: The suicide statistics are increasing among certain demographics, and I think it is a result of certain negative cultural and economic shifts. In the United States, for instance, the demographic that has had increased mortality in recent years has been... Middle aged Caucasian individuals, particularly males. And a a lot of that has to do, uh, I think, with the breakdown of cultural norms that previously encouraged uh, a greater degree of, let's say, individual responsibility, but also individual empowerment. Uh, And we could have a very long conversation about that. uh, But the
0: but it's been 3 hours already so I should stop with the digressions of
1: course
0: so uh and it's just it's just like occurring to me because a friend of my wife's just like a week ago killed himself it's terrible. and he was like early 30s and and he's such a great guy and you'd never know it like I'd never know it I met him multiple times we like I you'd never know that he that he was in that situation and yet one day just like this he killed himself and, and it's shocking. And, and then I looked at some statistics and today we're killing ourselves more than ever. So anyway, but enough digressions.
1: And this is why, by the way, I say death is wrong and life is right. And perhaps it is a dose of this thinking that is needed to help people not just live healthier, but make better decisions more proximately about choosing to continue to live.
0: But I think the key point here, though, is why. Is the why because we can't just convince people by telling them death is wrong and life is right. There has to be a story behind why that is the case. There has to be a story that gives them the why. Because if you don't have the why, you can hear somebody telling you life is right, but you kill yourself because you don't get it. You don't get why life is right. So you need to have a story, convincing narrative and a reason to give you why. And if you have a reason why, you can undergo and survive anyhow, as Nietzsche said, right? So, Gennady, last two questions. First of all, where can people find more about you and your work?
1: There are two places. One is my online magazine called The Rational Argumentator, rationalargumentator.com. And the other is the website of the US Transhumanist Party, which is transhumanist-party.org. Both of those will have an abundance of my writings. The Rational Argumentator shares more of my personal perspective, whereas the Transhumanist Party website uh, shares the work that I've been doing on behalf of the Transhumanist Party and the Transhumanist movement as a whole. And there are links to a variety of other pages about me, including, for instance, my YouTube videos, where I have posted a lot of my discussion panels, commentaries, and musical compositions.
0: Mm -hmm. Very good. And then we come to the final, most important thing after three hours of discussion. What is the single message? What is the most important thing that you'd like our viewers and listeners to take away from this conversation with you today?
1: The most important message is that we, the people who are willing to constructively engage with ways of improving the human condition, can transition our species and the world to the next great era of advancement, which is the transhuman era. Some might say we're living in it already. Some might say it is yet to come, but it ultimately takes technological progress reason and morality to get us there
0: Gennady Stolyarov thank you very much for being on singularity fm today
1: thank you it has been a great conversation
0: if you guys enjoy this show you can help me make it better in a couple of ways You can go and write a review on iTunes, or you can simply make a donation.